Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by J.J. Kimchi. J.J. is a PhD candidate at Harvard University, where he specializes in the intersection between European and Jewish intellectual history during the post-Enlightenment period. J.J. received his undergraduate education at Chalim College, Jerusalem, where he double majored in Western philosophy and Jewish thought. Prior to that, he studied at Yeshivat Har Etzion and completed his military service in the 101st Division of the IDF's Paratroopers Brigade. JJ has taught courses on Jewish thought in a wide array of institutions, including at Harvard, Brandeis, and MIT. His works have been published across a wide array of scholarly and academic platforms. He has ghostwritten two books on Jewish ideas, and his first academic book is due to be published in 2024. JJ is also the host of Torah in Motion's podcast of Jewish ideas. Without further ado, JJ Kimchi. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. This episode is probably one of the episodes that Bensi and I have been looking forward to a lot um, when we started this podcast. So before we begin the presentation on the Zohar, um, we want to ask you, Pacham Kimchi, first of all, just to tell us a little bit about yourself and your current projects. Oh, sure. Um, so uh, firstly, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I've been following your podcast uh, for a while, and I admire both what you are doing and also the guests that you have on. I think you have very intelligent conversations, um, and I recommend it to, to people with whom I talk. Um, so, so yes, my name is JJ Kimchi. I originally, as you can tell from my accent from London, um, I grew up uh, in London, a very rabbinic family, um, graduated from there, moved to Israel. Um, I, I studied in Yeshiva Har Etzion for a couple of years. I spent time in Sahal, uh, serving in the 101st Division of Tzanchanim. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at Shalem College, where I focused a lot both on general Western philosophy and Jewish thought, or Machshev Yisrael, um, and, um, or as they prefer to call it there, Madei Hayadut, and, and there's quite a bit of a difference between Machshev Yisrael and Madei Hayadut, but uh, that's perhaps a topic for another time. Um, and yeah, right now I find myself a PhD student at Harvard. Um, I study what I generally like to call modern Jewish intellectual history, that's the ideas that were swimming around in Jewish and Christian circles about Judaism in the 18th and 19th century. Those are very important centuries where Jews, uh, Jewish scholars, historians, um, um, textual critics started looking at the texts and traditions of Judaism, not from a religious rabbinic light, but actually from an academic light uh, and applying the tools of modern philology, modern textual analysis to the Jewish religion. It's a fascinating, fascinating period. Um, and part of that, part of what I have, um, part of what I've been studying as well during the for 18th, 19th century Judaism is, of course, the reaction to Kabbalah, which brings us to where we are today, because the reception of Kabbalah and the total reorientation uh, of the um, of the reputation of Kabbalistic texts and specifically the Zohar, because that lies at the center of Kabbalah, that is, um, that, that is, I think, central to the story of Wissenschaftler's Judentum, to the story of 19th century uh, Jewish intellectual history. Um, and that's sort of that what that is what got me obliquely backwards into the door of Zoharic studies and, and medieval studies, uh, which I spent actually quite a bit of time on in my undergraduate degree. Um, as opposed to my other projects, I mean, I teach, I write, uh, I have a, a book coming out uh, hopefully next year, which is a translation of Shadal's Vikuach HaChokmata Kabbalah, which is very germane to our topic today. Oh. And it's, it's a very thorough translation and I've, you know, hopefully done a good job and, and with a lot of footnotes and everything. So that, that should be fun. For the um, Chabura, you're doing that? No, no, no. It's, 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 it's just myself and academic work. Um, it, it's, it's a really oh. fun read. It's a fascinating and really deep 
uh, and and thorough work. And you know, obviously, I've notify put a big production. Notify me, please, when that comes out. I'm going to purchase it. Absolutely. We want to do a podcast on it. Is this what you're doing with uh, with the help of Rabbi, uh, Professor Menachem Kellner, right? So he's serving as the editor. Yeah, he's serving as the editor, which basically Ooh. means he, he he lets me just do whatever I want. And he no, he's the truth. Is he's been extremely helpful. He's been a wonderful second pair of eyes. I mean, you know, without him, it's, it, it'd be very difficult because you know he catches things and and uh, you know he he tells me off when he needs to tell me off. And and uh, you know, he's a very good mentor in that regard. But I was um I'm very close, thank you, to Professor Menachem Kellner. He was my manche ishi, my sort of my uh, personal. Uh, connection on the staff on the faculty at Shalem College so I actually learned with him every week for four years at a Chavruta and the Rambam uh, with him personally so that was um, that was a lot of fun what an honor uh, wow. yeah no, it was a really great honor uh, another th- project I'd like to mention here uh, you know in danger while running the risk of uh, mentioning the competition but I've also started my own podcast not too dissimilar from the podcast you're doing here Judaism Demystified mine is called the podcast of Jewish ideas um, and uh, we also, the idea is to invite on, you know, serious scholars and have in-depth conversations on their particular corner of intellectual history. Um, you know, so far I've had people like Ariel Mays and John Levinson, uh, and, and we're about to have an episode with Mark Shapiro. And we, we have a bunch of excellent episodes which we've just recorded lined up. So we're very excited uh, to, to be launching that. And, and, you know, as I say, you're, uh, you know, it, it's important to have as many good conversations as possible about Jewish ideas out there. So, you know, I hope both of our podcasts launch and rocket and, uh, you know, and actually, you know, we were talking off camera, but, you know, there's nothing I want to see more than people like you putting out great content, mm-hmm. um, putting out content that, you know, even though it seems like it's a rival to us, but it's, it's actually not, it's actually helps us. And it's something that we want to see in the world because there's so much bad content out there. It's, it's oh, yes. it balance out the world. So we really appreciate that. Um, and that we fully agree. Yes, yes. So let's get to the topic at hand, which mm-hmm. is the Zohar. So what exactly is the Zohar? How do we define it and describe it? Okay, this is an excellent question. Um, easier to start off by saying what Zohar isn't, uh, which is a book. This is something, it is generally known as Sefer HaZohar. And that's how it's called today. It's how it's presented today. It's printed in book form and lies on people's shelves a book. And it is venerated as a holy book. Um, and, and treated as such. However, neither in its content nor in its historical development can it really be considered a book. So what is it? The best way I think I can describe it is a midrashic anthology, okay? A mystical midrashic anthology, an anthology meaning a library, a collection of texts, because that's really what it is. If you open up the Zohar, um, what you will see, and, and this is true even the printed editions since it's been printed, is that it's made up of several different sections, okay? The main section of the Zohar it doesn't really have a name. It's usually referred to as Guf Hazar, the body of the Zohar, and that is a kind of mystical um, um, uh, mystical midrashic uh, commentary on the Torah, okay? Uh, and, and it goes through most of the parashiyot of Torah. Most of Sefer Dvarim, sadly, is missing, uh, but most of the parashiyot of Torah are covered to some degree or another, and that is the largest body of work. But there are other sections, uh, other sections in the Zohar, and each of them have although there are common themes and common uh, language and, and common motifs running through all of them, they're all a little bit different and, and, and do different things. So, for example, um, you know, there are two Idrot, Idra Rabba and Idra Zuta, uh, in which are convocations in which uh, Rashbi, and I'll get there in a moment, but Rashbi, um, you know, collects all his disciples and, and gives messages to them or, or you know, reveals certain secrets to them. Idra Zuta is, is a kind of a death moment um, or, or is the, the point of Rashbi's departure from the world etc um, and you also have 
So, so those, and, and it's all these sections, these various sections, there's a Sifra Tzniyota, and there is the, the Sabbat Mishpatim, and there is, you know, all sorts of other elements of the Zohar, and these are woven into each other, sometimes, um, you know, shot, sometimes actually woven into each other in the text, and sometimes printed side by side uh, with each other, but the Zohar is made up of these various different um, um, collections which are uh, which are mentioned there. Now, the central motif of the Zohar, and this is what ties it together, is that of what is known as a Chevraya. Chevraya being a mystical group, a mystical circle of, of uh, I suppose, of seekers, of, of truth seekers. Um, and at the head of this circle is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was a second century Tana. He was a, a, you know, quoted in the Mishnah and quoted later in the Talmud very often. Um, and all sorts, within the Mishnah and the Talmud, there are many stories ascribed to him in which um, they show, you know, he was in a cave for 12 years and he, uh, you know, had various revelations of various sorts. Um, and therefore he is seen as the head of this group. But there are many disciples, including Elazar, his son, and a couple of, of other sages, Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Achan and, and a few others. Um, and, and that's the central motif of the Zohar, um, that you have the sort of discussions. And what would happen typically is in Midrashic fashion, uh, one of the members of the Chevraya would open up, you know, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Lazar Patach, he would, he would open uh, up his, you know, he would sort of uh, begin a speech, begin a sort of homiletic uh, sermon almost, and he would interweave very delicately um, the, the, the psukim, the, the biblical verses at hand, and expound upon them through motifs that run through the ideas of the Zohar, which I'm sure we'll get to in a moment. Um, a couple other things that I want to say about the Zohar, which is important to understand first, is that it is, um, sorry, did, did you want to say something? No, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, the, the first thing to say is that it's also something of a novel. Okay. And this is something to understand as well is that the characters don't just sit there, they do things. Okay. They travel, they meet people, uh, they meet an old man, uh, which is part of the Sabbath de Mishpatim, who, who explains to them secrets about the laws of the Mishpatim, the laws of, the, of slavery. And then they meet uh, who, uh, another, you know, they meet a young kid, which is the section called the Yunuka, which they meet a kid who also, again, turns out to be a Kabbalistic genius and, and you know, spills secrets to them. Again, of, of the type which, which of course, the Zohar trades in. Um, and, and again, so it has a very strong literary component. And in fact, if you um, look at the recent trends in Zohar scholarship, it is the literary component that's, that, that is uh, taken most seriously and that is um, analyzed seriously. There's a book a few years ago came out, uh, Eitan Fishbane at the J, uh, JTS, who, who um, uh, got a quite a, an extraordinary book on the subject. And that that is one of the trends that is in, in which one in which the whole field is moving towards not just a historical philological analysis of the Zohar, which is, you know, it's, it's a very important uh, historical artifact, but actually also looking at it at it in its mystical strains. The, um, the, there's so much to say on the Zohar. The final thing I would say about the language, I mean, the Zohar is written in Aramaic, uh, and, it is, and that's part of its charm. It's part of its, um, uh, you know, it is... It very, sorry? Allure? It's what? Say again? The allure? The allure, yes. It has high barriers of entry. It is difficult to read to a certain degree. And, and you know, we can get to it later exactly which types of Aramaic and where it comes from and how old it is, etc. But um, but the Zohar is, is such a work in which the language moves with it, okay? And let me explain what I mean for a moment. Is that, um, you know, the big divide in 20th century philosophy is between the Anglo-American philosophy and the continental philosophy, right? And Anglo-American philosophy is generally written in such a way where the language is supposed to be as clear as possible, right? Why? Because you're studying a difficult subject, let's say, uh, metaphysics or ethics or logic, or whatever it is, and therefore you want the words to describe 
what you are do what you are doing and what you're saying as close and as thoroughly and as clearly as humanly possible because that will advance thought and that's sort of the anglo-american tradition but the continental tradition of the french and some of the germans is that part of philosophy is playing with the language and therefore these works if you read uh, Sartre or, or recur or, or derrida people like that so they write with the assumption that the language isn't describing the game it is part of the game and therefore they write in hints and allusions and double entendres and puns and they subtly undermine what they say and they write paradoxically and, and repetitively and, and the language moves along with the content. It's one organism, as it were. And that's the feeling you get when you read the Zohar, which is part of its allure as well. You're entering not just a cosmos of ideas, you're also entering a cosmos in which the ideas work together with the language and create this, this extraordinary, uh, all-encompassing experience, which which is why uh, this is the opinion of Arthur Green uh, in his very interesting introduction to the Tsar, which he says that he thinks that's why they wrote it in, in Aramaic. In other words, they wanted to write it in a language which which was sharply different to, to how to the sorts of, uh, of writing they would do in Hebrew, and therefore entering the Aramaic with different sounds, different syllables, and different rhythms, you're entering into a different world, both of ideas and of language together. And that, that's one of the things that makes studying the Zohar really something quite uh, quite extraordinary. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So what are the major ideas that are at the heart of Kabbalah? Okay. Okay. So, so the Zohar, yes. The Zohar, okay, let's, let's place this for a moment historically, uh, which is that the Zohar is part of the Kabbalistic tradition. Now, it's important to note at the outset that one mustn't confuse Kabbalah with mysticism. Okay, mysticism is a general phenomenon that's actually common more or less to all religions. It's difficult to imagine how you can have a religion without a mysticism, uh, especially a monotheistic religion where you're trying to describe or commune with something transcendent and metaphysical and, you know, substantively different from everything in your experience. And therefore, mysticism is actually quite a significant um element of, of of the of the religion and what you're trying to get to um what however kabbalah is something that is a very specific set of doctrines a very specific set of ideas and concerns uh, and motifs and, and themes and ideas um and that started largely in about 12th century provence moved across the pyrenees into parts of spain into uh, castile and to uh, catalonia different parts of spain different schools of of um, of, 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 of kabbalah and the zohar emerged um and, and again, I'll, I'll phrase myself very carefully because I'm sure we'll get to the authorship later. But the Zohar emerges, is published in little booklets by a, a, a rabbi in Castilia called Moshe de Leon around the, between the years around 1280 to, to 1296. Okay. It was roughly during those years that he starts publishing them in, in smallish pamphlets and they start circulating among groups of mystics in Spain, uh, elsewhere. They move over to Eretz Israel. Um, and that is, that, that, that's how it happens with the, with the Zohar. And as I said before, I'm sorry to go back for a moment, but I said before, the Zohar is not a book, both in its, both, it's, it's not a book, both because its themes and it's, it's different, it's, it's a collection, of, let's say about 20 or so different texts, but also it was distributed, not as a book, distributed in small, in small, I'd say fragments almost, uh, and later sewn together when only when it was printed in about the 1550s uh, in two cities in, in Italy. So, so what you have in the early centuries are actually um, only these, these early pamphlets and, and they are published by, and they are published, let's say, you know, to, to, to sort of just avoid the authorship question, they are written down and published by, um, by, Specifically, one Kabbalist, uh, as I said, from uh, the area of Catalonia uh, in sorry, uh, sorry, um, uh, Castilia, sorry, yeah. Castilia in, in in Spain in between about twelve eighteen to twelve ninety six. Now, 
Now, the, in terms of the world of ideas of the Zohar, um, I actually want to be charitable to the Kabbalists, which is not necessarily my general modus operandi, but I'd like to be somewhat charitable to the Kabbalists in the sense that it seems that they are occupied by the same problems that perturb all religious thinkers and certainly all Jewish religious thinkers during the medieval period. There's a, there's a specific set of issues that seem to be at the heart of their, of their difficulties. And um, and and to try and uh, and basically in solving them, they come up with this whole universe of ideas, which is at the center of Kabbalah and specifically at the center of the Zohar. Okay, briefly. Sorry that I'm making all these tangents, but before yeah. I describe, but before I describe the ideas, or at least some of them, we're only going to you know only be able to cover a portion of them. It's important to know that obviously the Zohar isn't anything like a systematic work, right? It's not uh, a Sadia Gans um, and we're not It's not a treatise of any kind. It mm -hmm. is, as I say deceptive it is uh, it alludes to things it is paradoxical it has it hints and then takes back the hint and then goes in a different direction therefore it's actually quite difficult to piece together a coherent ideology or set of ideas and then reaches us arguing by, about this today having it's said that systematized like you know the Ariz uh, literature and the Tanya and all that exactly in fact it was a whole cottage industry in the 16th in the 16th century with the with the Cordoveros Oriacar and other other works to systematize Kabbalah. In fact, the one of the things that granted the Zohar its authority, its canonical status in the 16th century during the whole Lurianic revolution and its aftermath was not only the printing and dissemination of the Zohar, but also its systematization. It, it, they try they try and make an, a true doctrine out of the ideas. And of course, you know that the, that's a whole piece of you know that's a whole area of intellectual history in itself, and let's put that to one side for the moment. So what are the problems they're facing? What are the problems that are actually common to all um, to all issues, uh, to all thinkers of the time? Okay, a few of them. The first is, um, the, first is the problem of God. This is a strange uh, idea, but basically the problem is that God is being both transcendent and imminent, okay? On the one hand, we like to think of God as entirely distant, entirely other, entirely transcendent, entirely different substantively from anything that we can possibly not only imagine but describe or have any kind of relationship with, because that is perfection. And that is, you know, the God of Aristotle, and that's the God in many ways, Maimonides. Um, and that is something which, you know, when you're you're striving for perfection, so you want to have God in that, you know, to describe God in that manner. The problem with that is twofold. First, is that makes God very distant. Okay, uh, you know, it's hard to relate to such a God. How can you relate to, to a God of that kind of description, right? Uh, the second difficulty with that is that you, that it doesn't seem to jive with the uh, data that we have from the Tanakh and Chazal, right? Meaning that in Tanakh and in Chazal, God seems to do things. God seems to feel things. God seems to have a revelation. He, he imparts things. And therefore, he can't possibly be this distant, indescribable element if he's also supposed to be a loving father. And he's also supposed to be, uh, you know, according to Shir Hashirim, a lover. And he's also supposed to be, you know, a judge. And he's also supposed to be all these things. So how can you have a, an imminent and a transcendent God? This is something, this is an issue that plagued Jewish thinkers, Jewish philosophers across the medieval period uniformly. Yes. Vincian's uh, iPad. Yes, go ahead. iPad. Uh, the Shomer Munim Akadmon, uh, Rabbi Vergas, I believe, mm -hmm. yes, uh, yes. he states this as the primary. He, he elaborates exactly what you just said. Good. He's defending Kabbalah, but doing uh -huh. first his idea of, well, without the system of Svirot and Kabbalah, you know, how do we relate to God? That is the primary point. And also the part of praying, who are we praying to? 
So I'm just backing up what you say that this is actually all found in Shomer Munim Akadim. Fantastic, good. I've read some Shomer Munim. Um, it's a very interesting work. Um, yeah. Yes. So, so, so yes, that, that's it, it's also interesting. It's in the form of a debate, and and you know we can speak right, that right. if you want. Um, but it's uh, yeah, no, okay. So that's definitely one of the issues. Another issue is the issue of um, revelation of or, or specifically the issue of the Torah. Okay, there are uh, there are a few issues. Let me get let me get to that one first. The issue of the Torah. Uh, the issue of the Torah is that how is it possible to um, or, or put it this way, the Torah seems in many ways a bit of an odd book, okay? Um, because you think, fine, you have this divine revelation, it's supposed to be this, this ultimate um, um, text, which is supposed to impart to you all the great ideas and all the great religious truths, and if you look at it, there's some very odd elements to it, right? Um, elements like, um, you know, genealogies, lots and lots of names, and, and you know, the, the last third of Parashat Vayishlach is all, uh, you know, lists of Edomite chiefs, and, you know, and, and it also has small stories which don't seem to make so much sense and don't seem to belong there and you know why are they in the torah at all what what, what have these got to do with anything you know yeah okay fine big stories like the the exodus from egypt or the the revelation at sinai fine you need them but what are these small stories what are these seemingly irrelevant tangents of narrative doing there also a lot of the legal literature seems odd why, why is it so important to god to offer this amount of sheep on this day and this amount of lambs on that day there's a lot of questions that one can ask about the torah if if and when read on a shot on a on a on a surface level um, and that's also another problem that's that's facing that. And and hand in hand with that, of course, is the whole industry of ta'ameha mitzvot, finding reasons for the commandments, right? Which again is an, an attempt to try and make the Torah seem somewhat deeper or at least somewhat more uh, full of divine wisdom than than it would otherwise appear on the surface. Another question, which I probably should have before, put before, is that of creation. Okay, how do you get from A to B? How do you get from an indescribable, you know, uh, obscure, distant deity who is perfect in and of themselves? To what we see today, which is, you know, kind of a, a world firstly full of unbelievable multiplicity, but also a world of a lot of lack and a lot of evil and a lot of pain and difficulty as a veil of tears. How do you get from A to B? How do you get from unity to multiplicity and from perfection to imperfection? What are the mechanisms by which that occurs? Okay. And then the other, a few other problems as well. I mean, the, the whole what are human beings here to do? What is the purpose of human beings certainly within the religious uh, religious sphere? And also, this is something I don't particularly want to touch on today because it's it's much too big and, and complex. And also, I'm not fully, fully sure I have a handle on it, but the whole problem of evil, of course, right? And this is a subject that is very strongly uh, dealt with in, in some Kabbalistic works. And funnily enough, a bit less than the czar, but, uh, but the whole notion of where does evil come from and why, why does God allow it to happen? What are the mechanisms for that? So this is a, a sort of a set of common problems. The problem of theology, the problem of creation, the problem of revelation, the problem of um, of mitzvot, and also the problem of the human role. Okay, so how do, so, so that is, I think, the best background to seeing what the Kabbalistic project is fundamentally. Once again, with the caveat that it is, doesn't seem to be a coherent intellectual project, rather a series of overlapping and imbricated midrashim and ideas that kind of sew one into another, and a very diverse uh, school of school of thought. So, um, so okay, so, so what was okay? So how do they take care of this? The first and the, really the answer is one major idea, which is is um is when broken down and when when uh, elaborated fully covers a lot of what we're talking about. And the idea is as follows: What the capitalists did was they said, okay, so we're going to take the, the problem of theology, and we are going to therefore talk of, about God in two different ways. Okay, the first way is to talk about the part of God which is absolutely hidden and indescribable and unable to be captured by any thought or any words or any ideas. And that is the part they called Ein Sof. And they had two words for it, Ein Sof and they had Ayin. And that is the aspect of God that, as the Kabbalists say, let 
that it is absolutely ungraspable by anything. Okay, and that's that. However, the Kabbalists then said there is another aspect, which is the more revealed aspect of God, of divinity, and that is the the um, the structure of the ten spherot, the SS spherot. Okay, but then the SS spherot takes you from this indescribable, distant, um, absolutely transcendent entity all the way down to the physical world that we have now and functions as a map for, for the relationship, for, for, for divinity itself. Now, before I go on, there's, there's, it's something that we're not at all used to thinking about or used to hearing, but for the Kabbalists, God, or one might say divinity or the divine dimension, isn't perfectly unified, isn't a perfect singularity like the Rambam admit, like the Rambam insists. Rather, it is an ecology. Okay, it is an ecosystem. It is a realm made up of lots of different points, each of them finely balanced with each other. Okay, and that is the way through which the divine, uh, and, and basically, and this we'll probably go on to it soon, but this is very much a building off of Neoplatonic um, 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 ideas and, and structures, but essentially the idea is that God is not creating, but rather the word is emanating. Okay, that from within the the the, uh, the concealed divine comes, you know, ripples some sort of tiny um, um, point that comes forth, and that's the very first of the spherats. And the first of the spherats emanates forth another one, and then slowly another one, which which go into their pattern. If you if you're putting this on YouTube once, perhaps you might, you know, put the the SS spherat chart, you know, behind me or something like that, as people can talk, know what I'm talking about. But essentially, that each of these spherats emanate one from another, from another, from another. Um, and, and and such that they they constitute divine potentialities, and and that the the divinity is expressed through these various aspects until it reaches the the physical world. Therefore, you have what I like to call a great kabbalistic example of having your cake and eating it too. Okay, you can therefore have the transcendent divine, which is unknowable, inscrutable, and perfect. But what you can also have is a, a facet of divinity which is, as I say, an ecosystem. It is complex. It is finely tuned and finely balanced and therefore can be understood, can affect change in the world, can affect creation, and, and can have some kind of ongoing interactive relationship with people down below. If that's how you square that particular circle. Now, this should all come with a big caveat, which is the Esesphirat are a wonderful, um, um, you know, a wonderful map, a wonderful blueprint that is proposed by the Kabbalists. The problem is no one's quite sure exactly what it is, what it means, and how exactly it is to be defined. In fact, different Kabbalistic uh, authors that came before and after the Zohar all have quite different ways of understanding what these Sfirot are. And the biggest difference, and this is a sharp wedge, which you can drive down the middle of medieval Kabbalah, is as follows. Are these 10 Sfirot parts of the God? Or are they created entities? Or Ramak would say the former, correct? Right. Okay. So let, let, we'll get there in a second. Yes, correct. Where, whereas, okay, you have, you're right. So, so in other words, is are they? And this is how it's expressed in Hebrew: Are they kelim or are they atzmut? Are they constitutive of God or are they created by God? Okay. And this is a very important wedge issue. And the problem is that whichever side you choose, you have a big problem on your hands. Okay. And this is, this is a bit of a, a tangent, but it's a great tangent. So we're going to go. Important, it's an important tangent. Very, a important. very important tangent for the, yes. for the following reason. And this is, by the way, 
um, this is a very important thing. In fact, um, um, if you look at the, the um, uh, Rabbavram Abu Lafia, who was a fascinating 13th century um, um, Kabbalist, wrote a very sharp letter to the Rashba, uh, Shlomo Ben Aderet, who was, was one of the Talmud, one of the students of Nachmanides, um, and a Kabbalist himself. And basically, he didn't use the 10th Sfirot, or, or not in the same way that others used it. And he, in fact, attacked Aderet. He attacked the Rashba and said, the Christians split God into three, and you have split God into ten. Okay, that, and that is the, the accusation that can be leveled if you say that these 10 sirot are in fact constitutive of the divine, because that seems to, to as you say, split the divine. What do you mean God has 10 parts, 10 facets, 10 aspects? From a Maimonidean or philosophical perspective, that's absolute heresy, right? And in fact, that's, that's what Abu Lafia is saying, and that's what various others have said as well. Um, um, and, and, you know, we'll put that to one side for a moment. However, if you say they are kelim, if they are just created entities, then that's also a bit of an issue. Because what you have is, um, because the Kabbalists tend to pray with the kavanot in mind of these, with the intentions in mind of these 10 spherots, right? So they say, ah, this bracha, we have to think of Tiferet, and this bracha, we have to think of Chochmah, Bina, whatever it is, whatever the 10 spherots are, and therefore it seems to be they're praying to something which isn't God, which is created by God. That, of course, okay. like, no, no, especially, you know, again, post, in post-Maimonidean Judaism, that is something that's absolutely, that's idolatry. You can't, re you can't reach the Ainsof, so you have to... Right, know. that's what the Kabbalists would tell you. The Kabbalists would tell you, well, we can, what can we do? I mean, you know, we can't even think of the Ainsof, we can't describe the Ainsof. And in fact, the Kabbalists go further, and they say that the names of God in the Bible do not describe the Ainsof. The, the God, the, the, the infinite God, the, the, the Ayin, is not... Um, is not mentioned at all in the Tanakh. All the Sfirot have different names. One is the, the Sfirah, you know, the name Yud, Hei, Vav, and Hei. Another one is the Sfirah of Elohim. Another is the Sfirah of all the other names of God. And each of these are referred to. In fact, there's one uh, element, one um, drasha in the Zohar, I think towards the beginning, if I'm not mistaken, which says that the, on the, the, the Pasuk, Bereshit bara Elohim, what does that mean? Bereshit bara Elohim means that in the beginning, Elohim was created. Yeah. Okay. In other words, the beginning, the that particular sphere, which if I'm not mistaken, is either Chokhmah or Bina. I can't remember exactly which one they're referring to. But in the beginning, those upper sphere, the Arich and Pin, were, were um, uh, created, were, were emanated. And that that's the real meaning of the, that's the real meaning of the trials. Sorry, that's the real meaning of that Pasuk, Bereshit Bara Elohim. Um, and that is, and, and that's the real, um, yeah, and, and that's the true divine drama that's going on and this is something that's a very important point which shalom gashim shalom the great uh, kabbalah researcher of the 20th century referred to over and over again which is that he he sees the kabbalah and the zohar as the return of jewish mythology as a kind of uh, you know th that medieval jewish philosophy had succeeded in emptying god of any kind of personhood or any kind of human-like characteristics and the zohar comes back with a vengeance and and puts back into the divine life a drama a creation, a theogony, a creation of the divine, a development of the divine, a manner in which God Himself emanated Himself from His from His concealed part into His revealed part, and 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 again a, a, a part of tremendous drama and an erotic relationship within the SS Firat. And this is another very important part of the Firat. And after this, I'm going to take a breath and drink my water because I've been yelling for a while. Um, but uh, sorry, it's it's a natural tendency, and I can't uh, I can't resist. <laughs> But um, within the tense Sefirot, what you have is um, this notion that the last of the tense Sefirot, which is called Malchut, which is is, is known as a, you know has it's also known as Shechina uh, or, or Matronita or other names given to it, but but it's seen as the 
feminine receptacle, the end point of the tense field where, where everything is drawn into. And, and basically the personhood of the, in the center of the spirit is, is Tiferet. And, tifer, and, and if the Sfirot are seen as they are portrayed as the limbs of a human being, so then Yisod is the, is the male member, essentially. And when the Tiferet connects with Malchut at the beginning, that through Yisod, so that is the true harmony of the divine realm. And that's, and that's desirable. And that's, you know, that, that is what causes creation. So you have the, the sort of coursing divine light or pulsating energies within the spherotic system, which are collated and collected in the center, go down through your sod, impregnate, so to speak, Malchut, and that's what allows for the whole of creation to take place, including the world we are here in today. And therefore, the, the Zohar reintroduces a certain amount of, of sexual attention and eroticism back into the divine realms. Again, if you're a philosopher, if you're a Maimonidean, you would, your eyebrows would disappear into your hairline. God, 10 parts, you know, a sexual life, a, a God, a development of God, a drama of God's development. What is this nonsense? You know, this is the, this is the philosophical counter reaction. But, you know, this is, again, this is the world of the Kabbalah. This is the world in which that happens. That so happens that most Kabbalists um, do, would furiously de deny that they are dividing God into anything but one. In other words, they are obviously, you know, original monotheists. And they would say, no, no, obviously it is, 10 within one, one whole, one unit. And in fact, they have a very arresting metaphor, which is used quite often in Kabbalistic literature, which is kishalhevet kishura begachelet, right? Which is as a flame, which is connected to the embers, right? And of course, it's a very arresting uh, metaphor because of course, is a flame part of the embers? Well, yes and no. Meaning oh. it is both. It's both part of it and divorced from it. It is both its own entity and also part of it. And that is the, you know, that is the revealed aspect of the Godhead of divinity. And I just want to write down what I want to say next because I really need to pause for breath. So why, why don't one of you talk for 30 seconds? Give me a break. Yeah, so actually, I actually want you, when you mentioned the whole creation of Elo, Elohim, mm -hmm. uh, it actually made me remember that the Christian Kabbalists would point to the bara part of it, actually, which was Ben Ruach Abba. You know, ben Ruach and Av, yes. Yeah. I'm, this, this, as far as I can tell, is the invention of a fantastic... Uh, um, um, uh, Renaissance humanist called Johannes Reuchlin, uh, who knew a lot about Kabbalah and wrote a lot about Kabbalah. I believe it was him who first came up with Breshit Bara Elohim, which is Breshit Bara, Resh Aleph, Ben, Ruach, and Av, which is, of course, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and, and of course, that's obviously a Christian, as you say, Christian reading of it. Uh, but that, that shows actually the, the the weakness or vulnerability of the Kabbalistic methods of reading the Torah. Because again, if you're going to read the Torah, the Kabbalists do, through Gematrias, through Roshay Tevod, through Sotfei Tevod, through, through the, the switching of letters called Notarikon, through all these sorts of textual techniques, well, you're going to end up with yes. the infinite plurality of possible readings, but that's dangerous because again, anyone can join the party. Anyone could just attack the language and reinterpret it to mean whatever they want. And it's extremely uh, it's dangerous. Extremely dangerous. Yes. Yeah, so. Okay. Fine. I, I want to. I want to address very quickly a couple of the other things that I mentioned. Because um, I want to try and knock out some of the problems that I mentioned at the beginning. I want, I want to show how the Kabbalistic system. Again, you have to give them credit, even if you don't like what they say, because they do, to a certain degree, solve the problem. Right. Because if you if you believe in the ten spirit, if you if you accept it, uh, and of course for the Kabbalists, the spirit is something that both happened at creation, but also happening continually. There's a continual flow of divine light and divine energy into the spirit and between the spirit, and a constant moving um, 
you know, you know, a constantly alive, as I say, ecosystem or ecology that, that constitutes the tense Europe. However, and so the Kabbalists use this plan, this map of the tense Europe divine uh, interactions, um, and essentially read the Torah largely through this light. Okay, and what I mean is, um, well, firstly, there's this wonderful passage in the Zohar, a very daring passage, uh, in which it says, I can't remember which parasha it is, I'll have to look it up, where it says that if the Torah was simply the stories that that you see that that, that you see on on the surface, what it calls the garb, just the, which is the letters and words and meanings, the text of the Torah. If that is all the Torah is, well, we could writ have written a better one. Okay, uh, it's attributed to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. We could have written a better Torah. Um, and anyone who just learns the garment and and you know doesn't look at the body or the soul beneath the garment, according to that same passage, has no share in the world to come. Right, that's the that's the the passage of the Zohar. Yeah, like the text is empty. That's really like it's not it's empty without the the um, Kabbalistic um, um, interpretation. Y yes, or, or I, yes. In other words, without the Kabbalist interpretation, it stands as just this odd um, um, sort of text unto itself. Whereas, whereas with the Kabbalistic tr uh, um, interpretation, suddenly everything bursts into life, right? And and therefore you see the Torah as merely. The, the sort of the garb and, and everything else below. And it's easy to interpret the, the Torah in that way, or, or so to speak, easy, because what the Kabbalists did, among other things, is ascribe to each of the 10 Sfirot all sorts of other um, names, um, months of the year, zodiac signs, um, um, you know, forces of nature, um, and biblical personalities as well, right? So most famously, Avraham is Chesed, Yitzchak is Gvura, and Yaakov is Tiferet in the middle. Right. And so and, and, you know, it's it's the these divine midot that are, you know, wrestling with each other in a kind of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, uh, a dialectical triadic relationship. Um, and, and according to, to the capitalists, that's that's part of the real drama that's going on within the Torah that you think this story is just about, you know, Yaakov going to the well and pushing a rock or, or you know, Yaakov and the sheep, whatever it is. No, if you really understood what Yaakov symbolized and that sphere and, and you know, what, what the well symbolizes and what the sheep symbolize and this and that, then you can build the story in such a way that you understand the divine secrets beneath the text of the Torah. And, and that works for everything. That works for the narratives, that works with the genealogies. They have a whole um, way of understanding the list of the, the Edomite chiefs at the end of Parashat Vayishlach, which is really one of the strangest parts of the Torah. Psuk, I think 37 Psukim just detailing the, the, the descendants of, of Esav, which again, the Kabbalists, through using their expansive and extensive hermeneutic techniques and mapping it onto the SS Firot, can suddenly come up with unlimited, um, you know, I would say divine or metaphysical interpretations of these psukim, right? So that's to a certain degree deals with the issue of the Torah. It allows for so much more, so much more extensive uh, meaning to be invested within. You know, in a way, the 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 text becomes like the klipa. In a way, it's a kind of a shell. You know? Yes, to to use to use kabbalistic language that actually became very popular through the Ariza. Yes, it comes through the klipa, uh, something which is much more. Uh, yeah, as you say, it, it's seen as a. The shell. Um, I think, to be honest, I, th I think the garment is is uses better because the, which is the metaphor given by Rishim in, in, in the in the Zohar. In, yeah, yeah, go on. Oh, I was going to say so. Uh, in the Kitve Ramban, I believe that he says that the that the text is empty, the pshat is empty, right? That's the lashon he uses, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I, it's possible. I don't recall that point. I recall that the in the Hakdama of the Ramban to the Torah says that the entire book is one long name of God, 
Right, right, no, this would be this would be in the Kitvera, but yeah, 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 yeah. It's all the names of God is the introduction. But he actually I'm almost positive that in the Kitvera Ramban, there's a part where he says that the text is empty. And uh, this is so so firstly, I, I believe because that that is a Kabbalistic position. However, this is one of the paradoxes of the Ramban. If you want, we can have another podcast about the Ramban, because the Ramban is the Ramban was such an, an expansive, firstly a genius, but also an expansive thinker that he operated on all these levels simultaneously that he can be taken just as as a regular parashan his, his parashan to the torah is is an extraordinary work i mean it is a very serious work of jewish thought just mm -hmm. on its own even if you discount all the times where he says al derech haemet which is how he introduces a more kabbalistic thing and of course the rumban being a real kabbalist never really lets on what he's doing you know his kabbalistic thing which is um one of the many criticisms, we're going to get there soon, one of the many criticisms of later uh, of later thinkers on the whole Kabbalistic um, um, sort of, uh, on the whole Kabbalistic um, um, system as a whole. Now, um, okay, and, and one last thing I want to, to mention with this whole Sfirot and Torah thing is that the, 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 the realm of the Sfirot also gives human beings an entirely new um, role in the world. Okay, because according to the Kabbalists, this these SS Sfirot and the various Sfirot within the Sfirot and, and the sort of whole divine ecosystem must be finely balanced, and it must it, it, it depends on human activity. And it depends on people doing what they're supposed to be doing in order to maintain the fine balance. Okay, and in a way that this means that the divine realms requires human activity in order to achieve its fine balance and its rectification, its eventual tikkun, which again was a word picked up by Yitzhak Luria, the Arizal, and expanded into a whole theology. But essentially, this again, this is a very powerful form of Tameh Hamitzvot. Because what it says is, you think you're redeeming a donkey, you're, you know, you are, uh, whatever, offering a, a lamb up, or you're, you know, doing whatever it is. Actually, what you're doing by fulfilling a commandment is helping, so to speak, but, but partially in quotes, partially not, helping the divine, helping God, helping the divine realm. You are allowing it to maintain its balance. You're allowing it to, the, the different parts to have the correct relationship with with each other, which allows for a completion of the divine realms, which allows for the blessing of the divine to flow um, uninterruptedly downwards towards towards the earth, and it's kind of the cyclical nature of human beings do good things, and therefore that affects a, a, you know a tikkun in the divine it's realms. A theurgical, the theurgical model. It's basically yeah. that that it's anthropocentric. Um, that that human beings actually affect you know, God, or we serve God in order to serve us in a way. Um, whereas the, the previous iteration was that there's just, it's a theocentric world where the world- can, Precisely. And you can imagine how much this would annoy the philosophers, right? This among, above, above all else, I think, is what you see object, objections to, um, you know, those who write against the Kabbalah, they say, what do you mean? What are you talking about? The notion that we help God that the we affect the divine realms in any way. This, for someone like the Maimonides, is not only heresy, it is the height of illogicality. Okay, it's the height of folly. What do you mean? Divi the divine realms are perfect. God's perfect. There's nothing that human beings could add or subtract. And therefore, he has to develop his own Tameh Mitzvah and his own understanding of, of human you know, activity and why we have the Torah and why we have the Mitzvah. Fine. But for the Kabbalists, I, I sort of just, to, I think, end... Uh, you know, sum up this this this, this segment. The, the the elements of Kabbalistic ideas, I think, which are most important to get through, is is the, this this the dual theology of the 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 Ein Sof and the Ten Sfirot. Also, 
the um the, the notion of the Torah as existing 99% beneath the garb and that what needing to map the, the Torah onto the tense the tense onto the Torah and describe the Torah as this what is going on there is truly the 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 key to the divine drama that is unfolding beneath the surface. Um and also the theurgic component which allows human beings to to do um to, to sort of um to partake in this uh, in this divine realm. Now I want to mention one more thing which is through these notions, Kabbalists redefine quite radically certain terms, and it's very important to know that they use these terms differently to everyone else. Okay, I'm going to give you two examples. The first one is the term yesh me'ayin. Okay, term yesh me'ayin, in used in philosophical terms, means ex nihilo, creation ex nihilo, something from nothing. Okay, yesh me'ayin. However, when the Kabbalists say ayin, they don't with aleph, right? Aleph yud nun ayin. They don't mean nothing. What they mean is the non-being, by what way, which they mean is that part of God, which we can't even say he exists, because that would be saying something about him. It is the part, it is the, the concealed God, the Ein Sof, that is known as Ayin, okay? And of course, once again, this is a very common uh, medieval trope, right? Um, you know, God in, in, I think, Meister Eckhart, uh, a Christian thinker, is, is also called uh, Nihil, or in Latin, or Nichts in German, right? This notion of calling God negation, nothingness, right? It is a, a strong Neoplatonic motif, uh, or, or to, to, to call it by, by its negation. Also, of course, to some, to some degree, Maimonidean as well, apophatic theology. And so for the Kabbalists, when they say Bria Yeshme Ayin, they don't mean something from nothing. They mean the development of Ayin into Yesh, the development of the concealed God into the tenth spherot and eventually into the, the physical world. It is the self-actualization of Ayin into Yesh, which is what Kabbalists call creation, right? Completely at odds with the philosophical Maimonidean Aristotelian picture. Okay. And that is again, it's they're using the same terminology, it's the same word, except when they say Yesh me ayin, they mean the development of ayin into yesh. Whereas the others would call it creation ex nihilo. That's one excellent example. The other excellent example is Yehud Hashem, right? Yehud Hashem, for Maimonides, for the philosophers, means declaring the oneness of God. Hashem elokeinu Hashem echad. The God is one, is has a perfect unity, etc., etc. One notion, one notion. One notion, one entity, one divinity, a, a perfect unity. Okay. He's not, he's not a multiplex Godhead or there's no partufim or trinity. Correct, exactly, exactly. I mean, yes, yes. In the medieval times, yes, that's what it would have meant. Now, for the Kabbalists, Yichud Hashem is not a declaration. It is a set of actions. Le-yached et Hashem. It is the, the practice of hit yachdut, of, of causing the divine realm to become more unified. Okay? As I said before, same words, completely opposite notion. It is a 180-degree different notion, meaning that human activity actively interferes with the divine realms, makes it better, has it closer, to, you know, makes it closer together, and and that's truly what the divine realms are. So maybe you can explain briefly to the audience who isn't familiar with this concept of Shvirata Kelim, um, which is the reason why we're we have to unify these, you know. Okay, the truth is that the main theology of Shvira and Tikkun is Lurianic literature. Lurianic, yes, that's true. And the truth is, I could give a stab at explaining it. I don't feel myself competent enough to give a comprehensive explanation, and therefore I'm going to leave that. For your we, have, we, have a, we have a podcast on that. We'll take care of that, don't worry. Oh, good. Excellent. <laughs> good. And, and by the way, I want you to keep what I just said in, 
don't cut it out before you put no, this on. Of course not. Of course because not. it's important that every everyone who delves into these ideas knows, okay, I have a competency in this area. This area, I sort of know what I'm talking about and I can give an outline, but actually I, I don't have the depth to really give a thorough, thorough presentation there from not. So before we move on to the next topic, I actually want to just mention what Harambam says um, about what we just touched on before. He says in the Mora, those who believe that God is one, that he has many attributes, declare the unity with their lips and assume plurality in their thoughts. This is like the doctrine of the Christians who say that he is one and he is three and that the three are one. Of the same character is the doctrine of those who say that God is one, but he has many attributes and that he with his attributes is one. So I think that's just an important thing to put to yeah. put. In. And uh, now to the next part, we want to talk about the question of authorship of the Zohar. Okay. This is a very important question. It is the question of all questions. Well, maybe not the question of all questions, uh, but it's a question of great importance for the following reason, which is that in the Jewish tradition, we ascribe great importance to a book based upon who wrote it and in which period it was written. And this is partially because of a doctrine known generally as Yeridat Hadarot, but the general assumption, uh, which is that earlier generations or earlier strata of Jewish scholars have more authority uh, and the texts carry more weight than later uh, um, um, sort of generations of Jewish scholars. This is very basic to the whole uh, Jewish religious tradition. And then the question comes up, okay, so we have the facts on the ground, which is that the pamphlets or the texts that would eventually, in centuries later, be sewn together to make the Zohar were first circulated in Spain in about the years between 1280 and 1300 um, by Moshe de Leon, uh, a Kabbalist and an author there. Um, we have some of his other works as well. Um, however, the text itself seems to be the sayings and doings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, a second century sage, and his immediate circle. Um, and, and the claim, the traditional claim is, which is believed by, I would say, majority of Orthodox Jews till today, is that this is in fact written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai or written by him and his disciples, because it also records his death, um, and that it remained underground or remained a secret, either hidden or, or passed down in secret for over a thousand years until, for whatever reason, it was revealed in the late 13th century by Moshe de Leon and others who may, may have contributed towards it there. Okay, so these are basically the two theories we're discussing over here. Either second century, Shirin Bar Yochai and others, or about late 1200s, late 13th century, uh, Moshe de Leon and or maybe his circle as well, which which we'll deal at a later date. Now, before answering the question, I, I intend to give a very thorough work through of, of the evidence and, and the, the conclusion that I believe one more or less has to reach is as follows. What sort of evidence are we looking at? What are the kinds of things that we are going to try and uh, use to adjudicate this particular question? Okay. And to do this, I'm going to ask the two of you. Let's say someone comes to the two of you and says, I heard from someone who I respect, who I trust, the, the Harry Potter series, which was written, we seem to know, by J.K. Rowling in the early 21st century, was actually written by William Shakespeare in the year 1600 um, and passed down in secret for 400 years and then published under the name J.K. Rowling um, um, in, in the early 2000s. And, and that, that's the, the belief, that's the tradition I hold. Now, okay, so you have this theory from someone you respect. What tools, what categories of evidence will you be looking for to adjudicate the question? Is Harry Potter written by Shakespeare in 1600 or by Rowling in 2000? So in a few ways, I would answer this as the style of writing. 
Um, okay, let me, let, let me let me jot some of these down so I, I have the categories. Okay, so, 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 the, so, okay, so, so writing, let's say, slash language. The, okay. men, the mentioning of this, the existence of such a text by people who existed before. Good, I would call that historical evidence, yeah. yeah. Um, who, um, who is the person who is making this claim, right? What is their background and how are they, like, like, Obviously, in the in the you're going to give the example of Kabbalah, mm -hmm. um, the Kabbalists who Moshe de Leon revealed his text to, you know, um, I think it was Yitzhak of Akko. Um, We're going to get there before yeah, before we get. Exactly. There, uh, he's saying theoretically speaking. Theoretically speaking, yeah, that's but that's what I mean. That's what I mean, that, that's what I mean by um, the person who is making such a claim. What is their credibility level? Oh, okay, okay fine. You know, I. I uh, the, okay, yeah, no, that's the, sort of the, the 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 person themselves. Fine. Um, what? Uh, okay, so so those those are, the, are definitely. Would, yeah, go on. I would also I would figure that if it was written by Shakespeare, it would have to have some cultural similarities to that time. Okay. Yes. So so th so that that's under language. Um, yeah, right, so and also, also right. I would say, yeah, right. cultural friendlies. Right. I, I would say also, I mean, also, I mis also potential mistakes or, or contradictions with earlier uh, statements that say of of the author. You know, let's say the author said one something one in one place in the actual Shakespeare, and now in the new text, he's saying something very different. Yes, okay. so, All, yes, errors and contradictions very important. Uh -huh. um, also, I would say um, just to speed the process along slightly, um, concepts meaning, or, or I would say two types of anachronisms: intellectual anachronisms and historical anachronisms. In other words, you can have an anachronistic con concept, now a concept that Shakespeare shouldn't know, or, or or there's a Harry Potter that Shakespeare wouldn't know, and um, uh -huh. so concepts and 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 events slash people slash historical realia, which again wouldn't have been known to Shakespeare in 1600, but would have been known by the early 2000s, okay? And basically, obviously, it's, it's, it's very clear that the Harry Potter series, not to sort of display my own nerdness in this field for a moment, but but obviously the Harry Potter series ticks every single box, right? In other words, the writing is very clearly early 2000s writing. It's not 1600 writing. It's not Shakespearean English, right? Um, it references various historical um, um, events or, or things that happen. For example, you have the World Cup in it, which is, of course, something that never existed in 1600, or you have um, a right. prime minister, which, of course, never existed in 1600. Um, you have um, his good historical evidence that Rowling wrote it. I mean... We have, you know, she wrote about the, the the process, and you know, everyone knew that she was writing it. Whereas with Shakespeare, we don't have any letters, and we don't have any, you know, external evidence of, of that sort. Um, and basically, so, so yeah, we have, and we have all these um, these four major categories plus errors, which don't really count so much here. But um, but but yes, yeah, so, so and therefore, you can conclude very comprehensively that Harry Potter was not written four hundred years ago by William Shakespeare. Rather, it was written as it seems to have been in the early two thousands by J.K. Rowling, because it ticks these boxes of categories of evidence. I want to go through is these categories of evidence and basically claim that all of these categories have been the boxes have been ticked, and it's extremely clear that this is a late medieval text. It's a text written in the late 1200s, um, possibly by, by Moshe de Leon, and there are possible other authors involved as well, possible a whole circle. We'll get to that in a moment. But all four of these, or perhaps five of these major elements have been, um, have been, uh, um, uh, have been, you know, uh, and dealt with or have been um, spoken about by previous scholars. And I think the evidence is Absolutely incontrovertible in all of them. So let's start with the first. The first is um, language, okay? The language that the book is written in is, of course, Aramaic. Now, there is a bit of a problem 
if firstly, just very simply to say Aramaic, because in the time of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the second century, Aramaic was the language of the common people and scholars wrote in Hebrew. Yep. Okay. Um, whereas, and therefore it wouldn't make much sense to write an esoteric work in the common language. Whereas in the 13th century, it is the precise reverse that the common Jew might know how to read Hebrew, but doesn't know how to read complex Aramaic, uh, unless again, they are a scholar and, and you know very literate, et cetera. And therefore it makes sense if you want to break the barriers of entry to write a book in Aramaic. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is, there are lots of fine um, philological points I'm not gonna get into, but essentially it's very clear this is a very late form of Aramaic. Not only is it a late form of Aramaic, which presupposes the Bavli and presupposes Targum Unklos and various other texts, it is also something of a garbled Aramaic, meaning it is an Aramaic which is clearly not the primary language of the person who's writing it in, and clearly tries to make it sound as though he is writing it in, in a, a, an original initial language. However, it's very clear that, that that's you know that's obviously not the case. Um, and therefore the, the the lateness of the Aramaic and also the fact that it, again it makes several um I would say errors in grammar and in syntax, very strange and sewn together feel of the Aramaic. Again, there's, there's a lot of philological work that goes into this. Um, that also points to a much later date of the Aramaic, an Aramaic which has other Judeo-Aramaics before it, which it is trying to put together and imbricate together into a new kind of what is called Zoharic Aramaic. Yeah. Like like also now that we're on the topic of linguistics, but there mm -hmm. there's also um you know Ladino words and ah, we're getting there. We're getting there. Don't drop the gun. I'm, I'm, I want to do this fairly systematically. You're 100% right. The next thing, the other thing I want to say is that the Judeo-Aramaic written in there has also the, the feel of the medieval period because what it also presupposes is a new philosophical terminology that had been transposed from Arabic into Hebrew by the Tibonite family of translators. Okay, so there's a family of translators, Yehuda ibn Tibon, Shmuel ibn Tibon, who translated various of the classic philosophical works, the Moron of Bukhim, the... Um, uh, Bachir's work, uh, what was the um, 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 Halevi's works, etc. They had translated that from Hebrew to from Arabic to Hebrew, and therefore had transposed into Hebrew various expressions and ideas with or, or, or linguistic um, um, formulations, which were which are Tibonite introductions. Okay, and this is the 11th, 12th century. Okay, so a text which clearly reflects these newfangled, these neologisms, these new a, a, a linguistic creations, which are there in the medieval period, must post-date. Yes. Must post-date. The, 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 you, you can trace it. You can see how it you works. You can trace it. There's one one uh, uh, phrase that Shalom brings up in his book is the phrase, in kol da, right? which means with all of this, or, or, or you know, considering this, which is basically a perfect Aramaic translation of, of one of the expressions coined or brought into Hebrew by Ibn Tibon. Now, there is, okay, fine. So that's another part. What you said before as well is that includes several words taken from Romance languages. Okay. So when so, so for example, the word used throughout the Zohar for a guardian is guardian, right? Which is uh, again a, a medieval Spanish word. It also very famously makes a pun in medieval Spanish, right? Where it talks about a the Baconista, uh, the Bet Knesset de la Ela. It's Right? It says Bet Knesset de la Ela. Eshnoga. It calls it an Eshnoga, a burning flame, a, a, a conflagration. And the word Eshnoga, except it was probably pronounced Esnoga, and that's how it's in Spanish, means in medieval Spanish a synagogue. In other words, this book 
makes a pun in medieval Spanish, uses words from medieval Romance languages. Again, doesn't make any sense if that is was written by Rashbi. It makes sense only if it's written in the late 1200s. So all so this is, I think, on the one foot, the linguistic element, which is that it is uh, garbled, um, 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 a, a later garbled Aramaic, which betrays um, not only the ideas of medieval philosophy, which we'll get to in a moment, but just purely linguistically. Expressions from the medieval period, um, um, and again, words from medieval Romance languages and words from um, from Spanish or from uh, yeah from other from other languages. Okay, then let's go to briefly the historical um, the historical evidence. Now, the first part of the historical evidence I think is quite easy to say. Oh yeah, go on, Betsy. I wanted to ask you. So there is. Um, I, I know that Rav Cook um, has has sort of uh, conceded this and. There is a notion floating around by uh, Kabbalistic apologists that, true, these linguistical um, uh, anomalies or, or errors or, or contradictions are there, but they will say that, you know, not the entire Zohar was written by Shemar Yochai, only a part of it, but rather over the generations, there was also, you know, uh, stuff put in. Bad way of saying it, but there was addition yes. made to it. Okay, one hundred percent. So the um, so, so yes. So what I would say to that, let's leave that a little bit for the end. What I want to do is make the case between the two theories, and then we can discuss what. Okay, so let's say we've been convinced by the case. What can be potential traditional responses? Because you're absolutely right. In fact, um, we we talked before off camera about my my ancestry, the um, the uh, Yaakov Emden. So sorry, uh, the Radak. I'm also descendant of Yaakov Emden. Who who wrote a very important treatise? Uh, Yochamot Hashem, right? Sorry, no, no, the the uh, Mitpachat Sfarim. Sfarim is a classic example of Zohar, a very sharp Zohar criticism, which also ends up on having a kind of orthodox conclusion because again, he's a Kabbalist himself; he has to. Okay, yes. we're going to get to that. I just want to make the case. The second part of the case is the historical part of the case. Now. The first part of the historical evidence, as we mentioned, is just the silence. Okay, you have again a thousand years. More than a thousand years, between the, the about eleven hundred years from Rabbi Shimbar Yochai till the publication of the Zohar in Moshe de Leon. During that time, the Zohar is or, or Zoharic texts or or this whole you know this whole library is never mentioned or hinted to, not in the Mishnah, and not in the, all the Midrashim, and not in the Talmud, and not in the Gaonim, and not in the early Rishonim. And not not any of the Jewish philosophers or Jewish things. Nobody. The secret is one hundred percent perfectly kept. Okay, this is difficult to believe. Okay? This is in a way difficult to believe because firstly, secrets generally don't stay secret all that long. Um, and secondly, because again, you have to believe that basically that, that that it was possible for these ideas to go on and on and on and never be even bubbled to the surface, even obliquely by any previous thinkers. Yeah, go ahead, uh, uh, Bintia. Um, Put your hand up. You well, just just <laughs> I feel like I'm back in the no, class. No, no, no. I'm just, it's, it's a habit of mine. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think that some people might say that while the book of the Zohar was never traced in anything before, the content can be, depends how you look at it, traced in, say, for Bahir, Hechalot, even say for Yetzira, you mentioned the term Sfirot, even though what does that exactly mean? So um, are you- oh, 100%. So, so firstly, okay. again, I want to address that at the end when I, I consider Orthodox responses. Apologize. But you're right. But what, what I'm saying is the idea that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai has a mystical book. Correct. Or, okay. or, mystical, or mystical traditions from him. That's what I'm talking about. 
Okay, you're right. The, if you look at, if you open the Zohar, it is a cornucopia. It's a it's it's a smorgasbord of ideas taken from rabbinic sources, taken from you say hechalot uh, literature, from the Bahir, from 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 medieval philosophy, Jewish yeah, philosophy, from, from Rambam and from Yehuda Levi. Rambam, I'm going to get to all that in a minute. But yes, that, that's another thing of, of the Zohar. That's another reason why we think the Zohar is so late. Words, <laughs> it's, it's it, it pilfers perfectly from all these different other traditions, which again makes it a fun read, an interesting read. It's it's mind expanding and and it's you know it, to, to trace its intellectual roots is a fascinating journey. But it means it's also late. Okay, yeah. it cannot have been early. But one second. The other element of the historical uh, record is, as you mentioned, for the Sefer Yuchasin. Now, what is the Sefer Yuchasin? What does it say? Sefer Yuchasin was written in the early 1500s, put, or rather put together by a man called Avraham Zakuto, who was um, a famous scholar, an astronomer, a uh, scientist, and he put together Sefer Yuchasin, which is essentially a work of history and genealogies. And in this work of history, he he transcribes the diary or the the sort of the records of a early 13th century Kabbalist, sorry, early 1300s, early 14th century Kabbalist called um, um, Yitzchak Demin Akko, Isaac of Akko. Okay. Now, Isaac of Akko writes as follows. I'm just going to sort of tell you offhand what he writes, and, and we'll consider the, the evidence in a second. Yitzchak Akko says the following. He says that he was in Eretz Israel, where he lives, and people start talking about this book, the Zohar, or rather these elements or these, uh, you know, booklets or bits of text that are called then uh, uh, the Zohar. Now, he, he writes that some people that he talks to said, you know what this is? This is the book from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and it's authentic, and it's wonderful, and you know, this is this is an extraordinary find. This is an incredible new discovery that we have. And other people he talks to says, no, this is, you know, recently written, this is new, Rabbi Shimon never wrote, wrote anything of the sorts, and, and he says that he met these two reactions in Eretz Israel, which, by the way, is interesting evidence on and of itself of early Zohar skepticism. He said, okay, so he decided he's going to go to, travel to Spain, meet with this Rabbi Moshe de Leon, and see if he has, um, um, and, and basically see what the story is there. So he goes and meets Moshe de Leon, and, and he meets Moshe de Leon, Moshe de Leon says, yes, I, this stuff is from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and I have been copying it out from an ancient manuscript which I have, that, that is originally from Shimon Bar Yochai, and, and I have the manuscript by my house, you're welcome to come and visit. Okay? And, and they, they, met, they met not in the place where, where he lived. Uh, Moshe de Leon lived in a city called Avila. And so a few months later, Yitzhak Zimin Akko actually travels to Avila and goes, and he turns up, and, and Moshe de Leon has died. Very sad. And he said, okay, this is terrible. What, what can I do? What am I going to, how am I going to get this, you know, how am I going to find out? How am I going to find this manuscript? This is the most valuable textual artifact in the world, if I can find it. And so he concocts a plan with another Chacham who he meets there, whose name escapes me right now, who basically says as follows. He says, I have an idea. Uh, uh, the Chacham says, I'm going to offer, I'm going to ask my wife to speak to Moshe de Leon's wife. They apparently were very um, proper in those days. I'll ask my wife to speak to Moshe de Leon's wife and say to her as follows. We will sort you out financially for life. We will pay for you. We'll pay for your children. We'll support you forever and ever. The only thing we want is this manuscript, this ancient manuscript from which your husband copied the text. Now, this is, uh, and so what happened, so the wife relayed this information, and the wife of Moshe de Leon said, I'm sorry, the manuscript doesn't exist. He wrote it by himself, he made it all up. All of this was his own ideas completely. And then the wife says, and I accosted him, I asked him, 
you know, do you really, in fact, have a, a manuscript from Rishim Bayochai? Let me see it. And Moshe Delon says, no, I don't. I'm, I'm writing the whole thing by myself. And then she and then she asks him, so why are you saying to people it's from Rishim Bayochai? And he says, well, it's because they won't buy it otherwise. No one will bother to purchase this. No one will take it seriously if I say it's from me. And therefore, I'm going to say it's from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And, and the wife says, and, you know, and I, you know, the, the manuscript doesn't exist. And I'm so sorry to turn down, again, this incredibly attractive financial package, right? She would be set for life if she just part with this, uh, this manuscript. And she said, sorry, I can't, I can't do that. This is the evidence that, uh, that uh, Aram Zakuto records from Yitzhak Dimin Ako, who records this conversation taking place. Now, is this very good historical evidence? The answer is yes and no. Okay, it is... It seems plausible Yitzhak Dimin Akko was known as a, as a serious scholar, a serious Kabbalist. There's no reason, to my mind, to seriously doubt his diary, his records. The question is, was the wife of Rabbi Moshe de Leon telling the truth? Right? Was she, in fact, was it, in fact, true that she had a conversation with her husband and the husband said, oh, there is no manuscript? And, and was she, in fact, uh, telling the truth? And the truth is that that's anyone's guess. Okay? Um... Again, it seems that she had every motivation in the world to give them the manuscript. The, again, she was an impoverished widow by now, and she clearly needed the money. And, you know, they, they were offering to set out a financial flight. She says, sorry, the manuscript didn't exist. Moshe de Leon made it all up. By the way, you mentioned that his daughter was also in the picture. Correct. And his daughter confirmed, yes. So it's two witnesses with their women. It, it is two witnesses. The daughter backed up what the mother said. Yes, that is correct. Sorry, you're right isn't, this, isn't this story only in the... Madura Shona. Good. It is only in the first edition printed in the early 1500s, and it, because it was so incendiary that it was taken out by later editors. 100%. Yes. Censored. Right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. But again, it's been revived and blah, blah, and found in other other texts, etc. By the way, the person who, who um, Yitzhak of Akko consulted with was uh, David Dafan Corpo. Yes, David Dafan, but there was another one. I think I think it was two people. I think it was the, the wife of the other person. He they was two, if I recall correctly, it could be there were other ones. But uh, again, my my, my knowledge, my, my recollection of that is slightly spotty at the moment. Um, but yes, but but the main point is this: is that we have in terms of historical evidence. So I gave we gave the linguistic evidence, all these indications that it's a very late Aramaic and very late language with Romance languages in it, etc. Now you have the historical evidence, which is eleven hundred years of complete silence on the matter. No indication anywhere. Plus, this evidence, this uh, witness testimony from uh, the the the, the Sefer Yuchasin, that Moshe de Leon's own family said that he said that he made it up of his own bat. Okay, that is, I would say, the category of historical evidence. Now, let's move on a little bit to um, events uh, or, or or later um, later inventions or later. Uh, what was what was the categories I, I wrote them down? Um, which was that they, that, uh, hang on a second, I, I've lost my sticky note that I wrote my categories down on. Um, so linguistic, uh, historical. Or li linguistic, historical. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's the one. So, um, where did it fall? I, I put it down on the desk. Anyway, I'll have to, uh, yeah, okay. I'll have to find it later. Uh, that would have been useful to have by my side. Right. So the other is, yes, there are various events and various um, um, people, events, names, whatever it is, that come later that are mentioned in the Zohar. So the Zohar mentions, um, firstly, it records the opinions of various Amoraim and various members who only lived quite a bit after Rabbi Shem Yochai. It also borrows quite heavily. Over a century, quite a bit. It's over a century. It's yes, not... yes, exactly. It also borrows from the ideas of 
uh, as you said before, Yehuda Halevi, it almost verbatim, oh, sorry, it verbatim quotes a poem from uh, Ibn Gabirol, okay, um, translated absolutely verbatim. It talks about the rise of Islam. It talks about the Crusades. It talks about a comet that shot across the skies of Rome in 1264, at the end of which a pope died. It describes that in very quite, quite uh, um, sort of vivid detail. It also um, talks about, um, uh, what the oh yes, it makes no less than nine messianic prognostications, nine messianic predictions in the Zohar, eight of which occur slightly after it was published. In other words, eight of them are listed as the early 1300s, basically the first half of the 14th century, which again would be odd if Rashbi's, why would all of Rashbi's messianic predictions be right at the beginning of the 1300s? No, it makes much more sense. It was written at the beginning of the 1300s and, and actually, talking to the sages around it. Yes. It's actually the messianic aspect of it is actually, you see that in Lurianic texts because mm -hmm. it wasn't supposed to be revealed, you know, and the reason why it was is because there's a messianic, you know, uh, age that that is upon us, and that's why we can reveal these secrets. That seems right. to be a common, a common kind of uh, motif. Right. Oh, oh yeah, I'd say so as well. And listen, my my problem is not that the messianic predictions obviously didn't come true. That's actually not the, the point I'm making. But I mean, it, I mean, that is obviously a strike against the Zohar that all its messianic predictions didn't come true. But let's put that to one side. Let's see if we can reinterpret those away. The point is that they all concern a very specific time of history. Okay, because that book belongs to that time of history. It concerns itself with that very specific time of history. So, again, how can you try and get out of all these historical anachronisms? Well, you can say that the book was written by Rashbi with, with prophecy in mind. Okay, what is the problem with that? The problem is that you must say that, therefore, it is specific. It is, the prophecies are specific in a way that no other book in, 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 in Jewish history was ever specific. In other words, you read the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. They're quite general. There will be a return. And let me describe the return in generalized nice terms, right? So that's Yeshaya and Yeremia, all, all of these things. They, they have quite generalized uh, um, um, visions of what will happen during the return or, 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 or in the future. Whereas we're saying that if you say Rashbi wrote it, then you have to say that he made lots and lots of very, very specific predictions about things that happened around the time of Moshe de Leon or the century or two before. And he wrote them down very specifically and falsifiably. Um, and it just so happens that the book came out slightly after all these predictions came true. Okay. That is asking a lot to believe. Okay. So that is, I would say, the historical anachronism element to it. Okay. And even I think there's there's parts from Yesode the Rambam's Yesodeha Torah, which is like verbatim. And, yes, yeah. it quotes several. I, I brought the Ibn Gabirol because that that really is verbatim. But, uh, but, you know, but in a way that you know that is an argument that is very clever because the Rambam notoriously um, didn't cite his sources, so right. they can easily say, "Oh, this is where the Rambam got it from." Okay, so so here, so th so this is the counter argument from Lake is listen all all of these things you know Gabriel Yehuda Levi uh, Shmuel Hanagid also cites verbatim an introduction of one of Shmuel Hanagid's works. The Rambam. They all got it from the Zohar. The problem is that, firstly, none of them mention the Zohar. Many of their worldviews are profoundly hostile to the Zohar. And it, it would mean that all of them had the Zohar in common, managed to keep it a secret from them and all their disciples and disciples' disciples, until the Zohar came and, uh, and published and only retrospectively revealed that all of these thinkers copied from the Zohar, which they had. Again, it's untenable. It just doesn't add up. It's if, if you read if you read what they write about Shir Koma, for example, it's like obvious yeah. that they would reject the Zohar. Exactly. 
it, the Zohar only makes sense if it's written at the end of the twelve uh, at the end of the twelve hundreds. Now, there's another element to it, which is the concepts, right? Remember I mentioned like the World Cup in Harry Potter, right? You, you can't have a World Cup if you're writing in 1600, right? The concept doesn't exist as a concept. There are numerous concepts. Um, um, so for example, I mean, you know, the the um, various philosophical concepts. I mean, this is a, a side point, but the, the, the ideas and ideology of the Zohar are very sharply intertwined with medieval uh, Neoplatonism and, and parts of Aristotelianism and the Rambam. There's a very, it's it, it, the, the, the ideas are very strongly interwoven with the ideas that were going around at the time. So ideationally, it, it seems to be very much a part of that time. It also talks, for example, about Gilgul, reincarnation, that appears nowhere in the Talmud, nowhere in rabbinic literature, only first in the Ge'onim, okay? It also, and this is the real linchpin, and this is, this again, is an absolute, uh, um, absolutely crucial linchpin, which is that the Zohar talks about the Nukudot and the Ta'amim, the yeah. vowels and cantillation marks. They didn't exist until like the ninth century, right? Ah, exactly. Now, not only does the Zohar talk about it, the Zohar makes drashot from them. Okay? It, it, it actively, it uses them to parse meanings of words and sentences. Now, as now the truth is that in large parts of Jewish um, sort of tradition, many have claimed that the nekudot and the ta'amim, the, the vowels and cantillation marks, the trop, um, they already stem from, let's say, Ezra, some say, or some say that the Anshe Knesset Agudola, or whatever it is. But actually, I mean, this is this was first really um, proven to a large degree by a medieval grammarian called Eliyahu Habachur, or Elijah Levita, in his work, Masoret HaMasoret, the third introduction. But it's been taken on by the academic world and by many other later scholars, including Yaakov Emden and others. Basically, that the Nukudot and Tamim did not exist until the Anshe Tiveria. The Anshe Tiveria were a group of scholars who worked, or, or they're generally known as the Anshe HaMesora, many of them went to various, some in Yerushalayim and other places, but they worked between about the 5th and the 10th century, and they're the ones who provided a whole system of Nekudot and Ta'amim to the Zohar, um, and, and that is, um, and, and basically, sorry, sorry, the Nekudot and Ta'amim to the Torah, that's where we get the the, um, the Aleppo Codex, and all of, I mean, that, that's a product of the Ben Asher school of the Anshe HaMesora, um, and basically, yes, and this is, again, something that, uh, that was never mentioned in the Gemara, never mentioned in the Midrashim, never mentioned anywhere, and you only get it quite a few centuries post-Chazal, and yet it shows up in the Zohar. So, again, and it's worse than that, because it shows up in the Mesorah in the specific Spanish version of the Ta'amim, right? It, it, different communities had different orders, you know, the Munach, Munach Ravima, Pach Vashta, Munach Zakev Katon, etc., etc., the, the Spanish rite has a very specific order, and that's the order used by the Zohar. So, once again, you have to say that if Rashbi wrote it, or, wrote, or his immediate disciples wrote it, they must have known prophetically somehow the exact uh, um, nature of the vowels and the cantillation marks, exactly how they would be passed on the Torah, and uh, and and use that to, to to basically to explain biblical verses and use that as part of their uh, interpretation of the Torah. Again, extremely difficult to say and also, also the fact that you mentioned briefly reincarnation like it would make very little sense that that's not mentioned in the talmud or mishnah or anywhere else and then all of a sudden it's mentioned here as atana saying it but the head of the academy uh which is of the gonim um meaning like the, the gadol hador right who seemingly would know Kabbalah, quote-unquote, um, he he rejects it completely and calls it basically utter nonsense and stupidities. So that is also part of the issue of the, the idea of the of the, of the uh, thing being, of the Zohar being a Masorah, 
is that if you hold the, the czar was passed down in, in secret circles, you must then admit that it bypassed some of the most important scholars, exactly. such as Sadegon, such as Bachem, wow. such as the Rambam, such as Yehuda Levi, because all of them have strong elements of the ideology which is contrary to the Zohar. So you must say the, Zohar, the whole Zohar sort of bypassed them and 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 then either never saw it or what. And, and it goes, it so also goes ideology. through, but also, oh, sorry, Vancey, but it also goes, this is important to note, it goes through the, the Castilian and Catalonian circles, the Franco-German circles, um, who, who don't necessarily have a, a direct connection to a Gaon, right? Yeah. So it's strange that it didn't go through Andalusia and right. or, or, or Bavel, yeah. Bavel, exactly. Yes. Yeah, sorry, Betsy, go on. Yeah, I just want to say that it's not just ideologically speaking, but Rosadigon actually has a tshuva in Masechet Berachot, Daf mm -hmm. Zain, um, I believe, um, where he discusses Shir Koma. And yes. in his discussion of Tirkoma, he actually lays out the groundwork for what could be considered part of a canon. And he right. says that since Shirkoma is not found in the Mishnah, is not mentioned in the Mishnah or in the Talmud, it cannot possibly have be part of our canon. Yes. Following those guidelines, if you follow those guidelines and just reapply. Yeah, Zara can't be in. Of course. See, here's the thing. I'm because he, he's the head of the Academy of Bavel. I mean, who, who, who is the Masora going through if not him? Right. I 100% agree. But the thing is, what well, the, the case that I'm trying to present here is in, in a te, intratextual, meaning just from the Zara itself. I'm not even saying how the Rambam repudiated much of Kabbalistic ideology and so did Sadio and so, did so many others. That's that's actually taken as read. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm assuming the audience knows that. I'm just saying the text of the Zohar, all the internal evidence points absolutely inescapably to a late country. Okay, so we talked about, um, we've talked about historical anachronisms. We've talked about language. We've talked about conceptual anachronisms. Uh, we've talked about the historical record, the Sefer Yuchasin. The last thing I want to talk about is the, the manifest errors in the Zohar. I want to say errors, I'm taking the, the position that the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Midrashim, the exoteric literature of Chazal is the starting point, right? That is the basis, that, that those are the texts we have. And if you read the Zohar, so you have a bit of a problem that these uh, that the Zohar in many ways runs afoul of of Chazal in many ways. So, firstly, um, there is various misattributions of halacha and errors of chronology. Who is after whom? So, for example, it sees Rav Hamnuna Saba, who's a much later figure, as a Rebbe in the Chevraya of of, of Shem Baruchai. Um, what else is there? There are, of course, halachot which don't appear anywhere in Shas, would appear strange. So, for example, the halacha that appears in the Zohar, that someone who puts on tefillin during Cholam is chayav mitah, right? is liable for, for capital punishment. That is a bizarre halacha. There's no other way to put it. That's absolutely bizarre. Okay. Uh, and, 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 of course, now, the truth is that because of the effect of the Zohar, so later communities took on this minhag, and now certainly in Israel, one doesn't generally put on Tzvim Chalam I still do. But the point is that it has it has various halachot which either are never found anywhere or contradict the halachot found in the Babli Yerushalmi. Um, it also makes interesting errors of geography. This is what I like as well. The Zohar was clearly written by people who've never been to Eretz Israel. Okay, because they completely, firstly, they name places that didn't exist. They completely get wrong the distance between various places, either vastly overestimating or vastly underestimating it. They also describe geographical um, um, markers as wrong. They will take, you know, a few small hills and describe it as a mighty mountain range or something like that. They will, it is clearly an Eretz Israel shel Ma'ala, an Eretz Israel that exists in their minds, that exists 
you know, from the text that they've read, but not in Eretz Yisrael they've ever actually been to or ever visited. Okay, and this is it, it, it's it's very very clear. And the final thing that I suppose would be an error, and this is something which which many later authorities get very annoyed about, is the deification of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Yes, something that several times in Zohar is the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is given attributes and 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 uh, and qualities which seem to be somewhat, as I say, almost quasi deific, almost godlike. He has the um, face. He has the face of God. If you yes, want to exactly. Say. So he, he passes the verse. The verse says, um, "It says shalosh pa'amim bashana yira'eh called zuchurcha et pnei ha'adon." That three times a year, all your males shall see the master, capital M. And the Zohar says, "What is pnei ha'adon?" Pnei Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai. Okay. Again, this is quite astonishing. And the truth is that this kind of cult of personality around Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai has lasted till this day. I don't know if it escaped your attention. Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, as far as I can tell, is the only person about whom songs are written and people sing these glorifying songs. You know, Bar Yochai Nimshach Dashrecha. We do Eliyahu Navi also. Um, sort of, but the point of Eliyahu Navi is that, is that the song, you know, Eliyahu Navi, Eliyahu Tishbi, Agiladi, Bibheira Yavo Eleino Imashach Ben David, it's sort of inducing him to come already, right? Okay. We're in Rishim Bar Yochai, you know, Bar Yochai, Ashrei Moladatecha, Ashrei Ha'am, Heimlom Decha, Ashrei Ha'am. As if we're talking to him. It's as if we're talking to him in a way. Yes, we're yes. We're different. We don't do this for Abraham or for Moses or for David or for anyone. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai has maintained this deification. And, and this is something that uh, we'll get to in a moment, presumably, but Rabbi Yaakov Emden was, thought this was, he says, Hari Zeh Chiruf V'giduf. This is absolute blasphemy. Okay? So, to sum up, before we move on, is I want to lay out the entirety of the case in front of you. We've mentioned, just like the Shakespeare and Harry Potter, there are a few major areas there is the historical evidence. There is the um, there is the the, the sort of textual uh, the language evidence. There is the conceptual anachronisms. There are the date and place anachronisms, and there are the errors. And I think, as I presented here, with the late language of the Zohar and including the Romance language within it, and the historical evidence of the Sefer Yuchasin and the eleven hundred years of absolute silence, and the evidence. Of the, of the many, many historical anachronisms, the rise of Islam and the Crusades and everything else that went on, and the conceptual anachronism that, that comes through the Kudot and the Tamim and the reincarnation, etc. And also all of these errors that I've made above, it seems to me the case, and this is the punchline, that to say Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai wrote the Zohar is to say that Shakespeare wrote Harry Potter. It is historically incoherent and impossible. That yeah. is the basis that I wish to put out there and I'm open now for any so, um, so I, I want to. I think Rav Yaakov Emden points this out in Mitpachat um, Tzvarim, if I'm not mistaken. That one of the one of the proofs, I think, another thing that I don't know if you mentioned it. I don't remember if you mentioned it, but is that uh, the halachic positions of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai don't line up with his statements in the Zohar. Yes, that, that's that's true as well. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. So I, I mentioned sort of mis misattribution of halacha, and the truth is that's not a field that I've looked at so much. I can't all these the, the things that I mentioned, the things that I've you know I, I've looked into much more. Yes, yes, there is the halachic history of the czars also. I mean, yeah, exactly. The Rashbi stuff doesn't line up, and of course, also more than that. Let me, let me ask you: something. Rashbi wrote the Zohar, and if the Zohar was known, then surely the halachot in the Zohar ought to have enormous weight. And, right. and, and until it's canonized in about the 16th century, until it's printed and disseminated, it just doesn't. Yeah, and it, yeah. Has, it has an influence on halakha. Like, um, people always say, no, Kabbalah is in a different category. It doesn't touch on Kabbalah. It's, 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 it's not true. It's not true. Yeah. 
Benzi, again. How, so, it's sort of disappointing, but just to flesh out over here also, like, okay, so it's it's untenable, but it caught on like wildfire. And yes. it caught on, like, you know, uh, to essentially like a global takeover of Judaism. How did that happen? Okay, so, so let's get there in a few minutes. Keep that question on ice. <laughs> Because, no, no, because what I want to do quickly is to take a look at maybe some of the... Okay, so, so let's say I, let's say someone accepts my position, that it's it's absolutely untenable. So what, what could they possibly say? Or, or, or now what, right? In terms of, you know, being Orthodox Jews. So there are a few, there are a few ways of, of trying to pass this. The first is to say something like, I think you said, Bensi, at the beginning, which is that, okay, look, the words, the texts that we have it as such are medieval, but the ideas filtered through, that's from Rishim Bar Yochai. Correct. Now, again, this relies on the, the again, the thousand years of silence, the thousand years of, of non-evidence on the subject, which is uncomfortable for historians, but I admit not impossible, because historians have to deal with what is, not what isn't. We can't adjudicate a, a, a tradition of silence or tradition of, of secrecy. Um, um, it also is a little bit difficult because, again, as I said before, many of the ideas, the core ideas of the Zohar, are very very much enmeshed with medieval philosophy and medieval ideas. So, for example, I mean, just Modern. of 10 stages of emanation, if you look in the uh, Yitzhak Albo's, uh, uh, sorry, Yosef Albo's um, Sefer Ikarim, he describes a Aristotelian philosophical version of a 10-stage emanation. Also, the first four chapters of Rambam, Silcho Yisodiyat Torah, has a 10-stage emanation. 10 stages of emanation. One the, the, Rambam, the Rambam has, just to, for the audience, the Rambam's um, angel, the 10 angels, is very, yes. it's a different, it's a very different emanation because the emanation occurs in the physical world, whereas, and it's not about God, whereas in Kabbalah, this emanation is inside the Godhead itself. Yes, absolutely. There are differences. The point is that these very strong parallels indicate that many of the core ideas are very, very medieval. But, but it is not impossible for a Jew to turn around and say, look, fine, you've convinced me. Texts, medieval. However, the texts they have in them, a core of the, of the ideas, despite the accretions that they've gathered, all the errors and all the anachronisms and all the random stories and all the deification of Rashbi and the false messianic prognostications, they have the, at them a core, I, the core ideas. And these core ideas do go back to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And therefore, the Tsar has a sort of sparks of genuineness in the center. Okay. This actually was the position of my Alta Zayda, my distant uh, uh, grandfather, Rav Yaakov Emden who wrote his Mipachat Tzfarim, um, and that, in fact, was his position. Again, it's not an impossible position. I will say that. The problem with that position, I would say, is that it begs a lot. It begs you're reaching. Lot. You're reaching. No, you're reaching. And what I and, and in fact, if you look at the Mipachat Tzfarim, I, I recommend this. Here's what Yaakov Emden does. He has a classic rabbinic introduction in which he says, the Zohar is holy, and the real true, true core Zohar is holy, and the holiest of holies of holies. Fine. Having got that out of the way, this is sort of obligatory rabbinic throat clearing exercise. What he then does is goes through the Zoharic corpus. And the Zohar, the Zohar is not so big. If I, I, I mean, it's a couple thousand pages long. You can put it all in one book. Here's the, oh, you can see it. This is the Kabbalah Center version of the Zohar. It's a thick book. He goes through it and he points out 282 passages, which he believes are late and fraudulent. Okay. He believes there's a core of 
through uh, teachings from Rav Shem Baruchai, but that a lot of later material on accretions, including the whole of Raya Mehemna and the whole of uh, Tikkun Ezar and Zohar Chadash and, and many of those later parts, those are entirely late, but but large elements, which are, as you say, later fraudulent, theologically problematic, doctrinally problematic, um, you know, riddled with errors, halakhic errors, et cetera, et cetera. Fine. Now, now again, so if you're Rav Yaakov Emden, who's a Kabbalist, says, and you really want to hold the line and really want to try and hold into the Zohar, you say, look, despite all of this, you have at the core a true authentic Zohar. But the truth is that's much easier just to take Rav Yaakov Emden to his logical conclusion. If you have a book with 282 instances of very clear, late, you know, problematic passages, then it's much easier to say the whole book is late and the whole book is problematic. That is, it's not even a logical, it's not even a logical conclusion. It's a little, it's a tiny step. Okay. Which again, and Riyakim Endon was no slouch. I mean, he's one of the most important, one of the most central rabbinic authorities of the 18th century. Um, and, and you know, that that lie that, that gives an enormous amount of credence um uh, to that. The truth is, so so so, so, so that's one option. One of the second option. The first option is to try and say a core of a Zohar and, and other parts. The other thing, just to quickly mention, and this is also, this actually is, I would say, somewhat intellectually respectable, is say, look, okay, I, I admit it. I admit fully that the Zohar is a late, is a medieval text, a late 1200 text. However, who is to say that Eliyahu Hanavi couldn't have appeared to Kabbalists in the late 1200s in Spain and revealed to them divine secrets? Who's to say that they didn't have mystical meditations to the point where they had a kind of a prophecy? And they got divine secrets. And, and who's to say, and this is in fact the, the sort of theory of, of Yehuda Libus, who's, who's a professor, that, that the Hevraya, that the, all the figures of, of, of the of the circle, the Chug, are, are code names. So Shimon Bar Yochai is, I think, Todros Abu Lafia, and, and uh, one of the other figures is, is uh, Moshe de Leon, and there's... Um, never heard this before. And, and others. And basically, the Zohar is a coded version of, of actual mystical gatherings that took place in the late 1200s. But if you want, again, if you want to try and rescue this, I say, yes, all of this does betray a late reading. But who's to say a late reading is, uh, who's to say a late reading is necessarily false or, or necessarily doctrinally uh, or theologically irrelevant? On the contrary, maybe they succeeded in finding secrets no one had before. Again, well, conveniently, we have a canon. Kabbalah. We, have a, we have a canon. Yeah, well, conveniently, um, Kabbalah, it, it, like you mentioned before, the Yeridat HaDorot thing, it sort of flips it on its head because now in Kabbalah, later revelations are are actually closer to like it's the it's the newer revelations that are ma that matter, right? The Arizal's work kind of um, you know made the Ramak's works obsolete. So in a way, and the Ramak right. systematized the, the the Zohar to an extent that it's user friendly. Right. So so um, regarding. Um, that argument that you're that they're saying that these this Moshe de Leon, this is actually a coded, this is their um, get this is a recorded gathering used in, in a kind of um, midrashic way. So how how would we how would you respond to such a claim? That it's implausible. <laughs> that's it. Meaning that, that's the, meaning it's a sort of claim which okay I can't thoroughly disprove it. All I can say is that is, is firstly, as Benson said, there is a canon, meaning, you know, you can't just arbitrarily add books, but also you can say that look, if it's not Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, if it's Moshe de Leon, then it's much easier to dismiss. That's the problem. If it's Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, he's a central pillar yeah. of yeah. rabbinic literature, and if he's truly the author, then the Zohar is a really important book. If there was a book made by Moshe de Leon and his helpers, 
I think this is the easiest point to dismiss, actually, because who is he? Did he write the, any other important Pirushim that we know about? Did we? Did he? Did he is he a, such a central canonical figure? No. I think, I think that this is actually the part that makes it so easy to dispute because the way this Kabbalistic, this new Kabbalah that appears, it always appears in a very mysterious way under a rock in Spain, or you know, and then later on it becomes through a Magid, an angel, some type of you know, all of a sudden a prophecy. It's it's all this new information is coming about in the non-traditional way of Rebbe to student, right? Yes. Uh, being, yeah, to, to some degree. It, the Mesorah has to come from from that. And actually, we have what the Talmud records as Maseh Bereshit, Maseh Merkava, that there is a a process mm -hmm. that that it describes. Obviously, it doesn't describe true uh, mysticism. Doesn't describe God how God functions. And also, it's kind of an oral presentation um, that is completely different than what we're seeing here in, in, in the Zohar. Right. Yeah. So for those who might be a little bit confused about a few points, um, I want to mention that Moshe de Leon um, was a professional copyist. I think, that has, I think that's an important thing to mention about who he was. He had access. There was no printing press. Um, and obviously part of the success of Kabbalah and the growth of Kabbalah was the fact that there was a printing press um, later on and it just exploded. But in his time, he was a professional copyist. So he had access to many texts and he knew how to weave yeah. it together, obviously. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention is the this style of attributing something to an ancient um, author is called pseudepigrapha. Um, and it was a lot of Christians used it, some some Jews used it. So it was just a style of writing, kind of to circumvent um, Misora, so to speak. Um, that's just a way to um, cleverly um, date a, te a text back to an ancient time. And um, I wanted. Sorry, if I want to comment on that very briefly. Um, that is, it's a very important point, a pseudographic point, and that is. That is the fault line which distinguishes 19th century Kabbalistic studies from 20th century Kabbalistic studies. In the 19th century, the major figures who addressed the, the dating of the, of the Zohar was, firstly, Adolf Yelinek, uh, an important rabbi named Adolf, which I don't think happens so much anymore, um, was Heinrich Gretz, um, was to a certain degree Christian David Ginsburg, who also uh, wrote within that. He also addressed it quite significantly. Um, and is anyone I'm missing? Um, no, Gretz was, Gretz was the archetype, the main um, sort of figure who addressed this. And the truth is that that he, in, in his history, both in the text and in the footnotes, this is Geshech de Yudin, he writes very negatively about Moshe de Leon. He thinks Moshe de Leon is a forger. He's, he commits forgery. It's fraudulent what he's doing because he is attributing a text, uh, you know, back into to someone else and thereby arrogating to it authority that it, it legitimately shouldn't have. And, and and that that was to him to to professional bibliographs uh, bibliophiles like um, like Gretz uh, and like uh, Steinschneider at the time that was the biggest insult that was something they couldn't stand. However, this was the turning point that Gershom Shalom managed to affect in the twentieth century, which he says they weren't forgers; they were practicing a very legitimate practice called pseudepigraphy. And in fact, it may have been clear to those at the time that it wasn't Rabbi Shimon and those who understood knew that it wasn't really. Uh, an ancient text, um, and therefore we should see them not as forgers, but as uh, you know, authors of significant texts who used a legitimate convention at the time, and therefore we shouldn't judge them in, in a negative moral light. And that, and that has basically since Shalom has been has, has written that 
basically all the research has said, okay, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, the issue with that statement, the issue with that statement would be that it was known at the time, and meanwhile, in from according to Sefer Yuchsin, the first the first account already did not know that this, this was, uh, you know, absolutely very important. The very important. And, and also the fact that the this the text was released secretly and slowly with pamphlets, and you know, it it happened just to coincide with it. And it was an anti-Maimonidean movement that happened when you know the fall of Andalusian, uh, the, the fall of the Andalusian rabbis. Um, it just so happened that this this text kind of slowly came through in a way to not draw the ire of the masses because I think that if the Andalusian rabbis even saw such a thing, they would be in, uh, you know they would they would have a fit. Oh, um, absolutely. I fully agree, and and it's true. The Tsar benefited from a lot of fortunate historical circumstances, and we're going to yes. get to that soon. But I okay. first want Bensi to formulate the question. I want okay, so we want to get into essentially uh, the argument of acceptance, which means can we get into how the Zohar um, became popularized? Yes, I, I thought you meant by arguments of acceptance that you know what can we do now that it's accepted? Meaning, you know, the argument is the Zohar is 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 um... no. What I meant what I meant by the question was is that. Okay, so there will be a large chunk. In fact, most people, I think, if they were listening right now, and we're talking about people that have already been in, like, you know, they, the, the Zohar is ingratiated in their lives at this point, correct? So they would listen to all of this, and then they will say, listen, bottom line, after all these things that you described, it was accepted by the greatest rabbis that we had at the time, and for them, that's enough. Yes. That's what I'm trying to and, and the, so the is, argument from acceptance, the yeah, argument that it was accepted, therefore, from authority or acceptance, yes, authority, it's the same idea eventually. So, therefore, all these um, points that have been made essentially just crumble at the point, at the fact of the authorities have accepted it. So, okay. So, the truth is, it depends what they're using the argument to of, from acceptance to prove. If they're trying to say, Look, all these authorities of Yosef Karo and the Ramchal and all these people accepted the Zohar and built their lives off the Zohar, and therefore we should treat it as a serious text or whatever it is. So I, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I wouldn't say amenable to it, but I understand. I mean, that is sort of the way a, a religious tradition works, right? And this isn't this is the same with every Jewish text. Why is the Talmud Bavli the authoritative text? The answer is because rabbis after the Talmud Bavli decided to treat it as an authoritative text, right? Words, there is a large, a large degree of that. What I would say, though, is that that doesn't change the historical argument. In other words, if you want to come to me and say, okay, and, and therefore, argument from acceptance, and therefore we should treat the Zohar seriously and as a holy text, an important text, fine. If you come to me and say, because it's been accepted, therefore we know that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his disciples wrote the text, mm -hmm. th that, that we can dismiss, again, because of what I think is the overwhelming historical evidence against it. Okay? Gotcha. So, so it depends what you're trying to do. So let's talk a little bit about the fortuitous circumstances that allows the Zohar to essentially explode. Okay, and there are a few of them. Um, the first is, okay, so, so as, as you say, for a large period of time, it circled among small elites within the, um, you know, small mystical circles within, you know, uh, on the on the um, Iberian Peninsula, um, it made its way a little bit into Italy. We had the first uh, Italian rabbis trying, you know, you know essentially writing Pirushim on it, um, and Recanati and um, 
and others, I, the names, it's late at night, the names are starting to get mixed up in my head, but but the, those who accepted it, you know, 14th, 15th century Italy, um, and, and also Eretz Yisrael and a few other places, and it started to gain some credence. Now, it must be noted that even in this early point, there were voices against it. So we saw Yitzhak Dimin Akko's testimony, already in the Sefer Yuchasin, there were several Kabbalists who didn't believe the Zohar. We also have the testimony of the Rivash, of Yitzhak Bar Sheshet, who writes in one of his tshuvot, I think number Kuf Nun Zayin, if I'm not mistaken, that he 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 asks serious you know um, questions on uh, the on the notion of of praying towards or directing your kavanah towards some of the spheres. He thinks that's that's bizarre, and he quotes one of the Hamid Palsafim, one of the philosoph philosophically minded Jews in this area, saying that you know oh this is this is basically this is idolatry, this is polytheism, and then. Um, you also have you have a few others. You um um so you have the Shudri Rivash. You also have an interesting testimony from a Kabbalist called Yosef Ibn Wakar. Ibn Wakar was a 14th century Talmudist and Kabbalist, quite an important figure, who wrote um a work again. The name now escapes me. Um, which um which has a uh, which basically you know is is very pro Kabbalah. And one of the sections talks about all the important Kabbalistic works that you must read and Rambana la Torah and all the other works that you have to read. And then it says, do not read the Zohar. Because it's full of errors, and it's you know it'll lead you down the wrong path, and it's full of mistakes, and you know, don't uh, don't waste your time with the Zohar. Okay, so we have already fragments of evidence in the early in the 14th, 15th centuries already that this is um, that you know this 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 work is the, there was some sort of pushback, there was some sort of resistance to the spread of the Zohar. Then comes along Girush Svarad. Okay, the expulsion of Jews from Spain in 1492, the expulsion, destruction of the community, and the 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 um, expulsion around the world of Spanish authorities of of you know the great rabbinim and the great uh, authority figures from Spain, and that from the point of view of the Zohar and specifically Kabbalah was in a way quote unquote very fortuitous because what they did was firstly it exploded, uh, uh, it it made sure that all the authority figures. Or, or those who were knowledgeable in Kabbalah and those who had elements of the Zohar were sent to Jewish communities around the world, some around Europe, some into Italy, into the Ottoman Empire, into Eretz Israel, into Eastern Europe, all over the Jewish world. Secondly, the, the Spanish expulsion more or less spelt the death knell of Jewish philosophy, okay, of rationalist medieval Jewish philosophy, the proud tradition that started more or less with Saad Yagon and went through uh, you know, uh, uh, Pakuda and the Rambam, and uh, Albo and 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 the last last gaps were probably uh, Yisraka Barbanel. After that, that was more or less the end, and that had a lot to do with Girush Svarat. So you had the major counterweight to uh, to Kabbalah and to the Zohar, more or less was was had a steep decline, and it's not entirely clear how or why that is, but but that is certainly the or what exactly the um, the mechanism behind that was. But that's another thing that happened. A further thing that happened was that. The, the Jews found their new environment, specifically in the Ottoman Empire and a bit later in Eastern Europe, to be much more conducive to Kabbalah than philosophy. Okay, Kabbalah, because it is, I would say, much more, in a way, much more insular, in a way, much more, much less universalistic, um, much more concerned with absolute distinctions between Jews and non-Jews, absolute distinctions between men and women and other such things. These notions and concepts and ideas gained much more credence around um, um, in these new places that the Jews were. Okay, specifically well, the Ottoman also, Empire. Also the, the theurgical aspect of it yes, is attracting, 
Yeah. That is that. Is, yeah, yeah, third guy. And 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 Gershom Shalom advanced another opinion, which has been fiercely contested by Moshe Idel and others. But he also believed that there was a psychological benefit to the Kabbalistic system, vastly over and above the uh, the philosophical or other competing systems. Okay, because the Kabbalistic system sees sees a much deeper meaning in catastrophe. Right, catastrophe is something that happens not only on the on the lower realm but also in the divine realm, and the, the Shechina is. Is is in exile with the, the Jews, and there is this, you know, um, that, that, that there's a, a sharp correlation between what's happening to the Jews down below and what's happening in the divine realms above. And there's the way of rectifying the situation through very um, interventionist human actions on the part of the Jews. So you have this, and, and according to Shalom, that was a sort of a psychological benefit which allowed for the spread of Kabbalah in the 50, uh, sorry, in the 16th century, in the 1500s. That, according to him, was one of these. So it's, it's all these various aspects. Which are very important. Now there are two other. So, so, so this this sort of allowed Kabbalah to spread, and then two other very important factors came around. The first is the rise of Tzfat. Tzfat very swiftly in about the 1530s, I believe, rose as a textile um, manufacturing center. Essentially, rose economically um, and and flowered an extraordinary uh, sort of renaissance of Jewish ideas and, and interactions and specifically mystical interactions of course a large part of this is a return to the setting of the zohar right the zohar was written theoretically in the galil according according to tradition and therefore you had a return to you know scholars converge on this place and once again they had the natural background uh, of the zohar and they had the places referred to in the zohar and they had the graves of various uh, um, um you know rabbinic Rabbinic, senior rabbinic leaders from, from the period of Chazal. And so that led to an enormous um, profusion of interest in Kabbalah. It had the, and therefore you had the systematization of Moshe Cordovero and others. You had the immense expansion of Zoharic ideas from the Ari, from the Arizal. Um, and you also had, and this is something you alluded to before, the seeping into the halachic system of from the Kabbalah due to the works of Rav Yosef Karo. Now, prior to Rav Yosef Karo, there were several more minor halachic thinkers who already incorporated certain um, ideas from the Zohar, or certain uh, um, customs from the Zohar. Um, so, for example, in the 16th century, you already had the rise of, of Ushpizin in the Sukkah, um, of saying Bruch made Mari Alma and Shul, um, various other customs, various other halachic decisions. Rav Yosef Karo sees the Zohar as, and quotes it explicitly, as a halachic source, and integrates his Kabbalistic side and his halachic side. So within this 30 or 40 year, quite a short period in Sfat, you have this enormous profusion of systematization, of expansion, and of inclusion within the halachic sphere, in this seething, bubbling cauldron of ideas that was 16th century Sfat. okay? Of course, after 16th century, uh, shortly afterwards, when Tzfat sharply declined as a center of Jewish activity, you had uh, figures like Reb Chaim Vital and others going to spread the ideas of the, the figures in Tzfat throughout Europe, and especially in Italy and other places, and that's the, sort of, that, that was the work of Chaim Vital. The other major element that led to the huge um, um, dissemination and profusion of the, the Kabbalah, and especially the Zohar, was, of course, the invention of the Zohar as a book, namely its printing. Okay, and it's difficult for the for the modern mind to imagine what an unbelievable revolution printing was. Because pr prior to printing, writing a book was like we have writing a safer Torah today, painstaking, long, expensive, um, um, difficult. You have to find people who are expert in etc. Once you have printing, within a couple decades, you had 
the amount of books in the world, you know, increased by factors we can't even imagine because suddenly all you need is the, the impress of one page and you do all that page thousands of times, whatever it is, and the next page, the next page, and quite cheaply and quite quickly, you can produce as many books as you want, send them all over the world. And this was an explosion in knowledge. Of course, it's a crucial um, element of the Christian Reformation and later of the Enlightenment, et cetera, et cetera. But was, of course, the the, um, the revolution of the printing press. And that was a revolution for the Zohar, firstly, because the Zohar came into existence, meaning the editors in Italy, in uh, Cremona and Mantua in the 1550s, created this book called the Zohar by sewing together and putting together all these disparate elements of the Zohar, as I mentioned before, and also printed it and disseminating it. Suddenly, communities around the world had the Zohar, and the Zohar began to be seen as a canonized text, as a text that was holy, that was belonged on the top shelf of the Jewish canon, and, and was treated, you know, royally in, in a certain way. And of course, the ideas began to be discussed, and more and more works were written on the subject, and suddenly you can have a massive explosion of of super commentaries and super super commentaries on uh on the zohar due to again all the work that was going on in Tzfat and also the ease and and efficiency and cheapness that was available to the dissemination of the zohar and zoharic ideas uh, wrought on by printing i think also um the theurgical aspect was attractive to people who were like really suffering in, in a brutal exile at certain points where it became like something like Shabtai Tzvi could have never happened under the Maimonidean tradition. It could only happen through this idea of like a new prophecy coming to some Kabbalist, right? And and um, this, it kind of like um, changed, it changed Judaism forever, really. It did because now you have these, um, all these offshoots, all these movements that we never had before. We had, we never had all these like kind of um, splinter groups and and um, sects. And now all of a sudden, this is just the Kabbalah kind of feeds into all of that. One hundred percent. And I would say that that connecting this connection, the expulsion from connecting the expulsion from Spain to um, to to the Tzfat. To, to Shabtai Tzvi and then to then to Hasidut, that is the major thesis at the heart of Gershom Shalom's central book, Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism. That is, he, he threads that historical loop. Now, that historical loop has been challenged by many of his uh, successors and many later people, but he makes, I would say, a reasonably convincing case for a sort of thread of ideas, as you say. The, the the comfort afforded in the expansion of Ariza and, the, and within the Ariza, the, the expansion of the idea of a tikkun and of a tzaddik, and that tzaddik being massively um, blown out of proportion in the Shab in, in the Sabbatean revolution of the 17th century, and then quietened and defanged and domesticated by Hasidut in the 18th century. Shalom sees Hasidut as kind of Shabtai Tzvi without teeth, right? The doctrine of the tzaddik as as um, as this this unique figure that can render tikkun in the upper realms, just you know, devoid of. Shalom sees one of Hasidut's great um, great achievements is the calming of the messianic tempers and passions which characterized the disaster of the Sabbatean movement in the in the mid to late 18th century. Yeah, it's more like it's more like a polemic against you know the after effects the aftershocks yes That's yeah which, which, which were considerable and according to Shalom the aftershocks of, of Shabtai Tzvi were to a certain degree behind um 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 uh, Zionism and Reform Judaism and everything we see in the 19th century as well but Shalom and and this is a tangent but it's an interesting one Shalom sees all of Kabbalah and this kind of mythic history as a counter history within Jewish history itself. This kind of, you know, major wave beneath the surface, current beneath the surface of Jewish history that if you trace it out correctly, actually is responsible for many of the major 
intellectual revolutions within Jewish history at the time. It's it's a very interesting I thesis. It, I think it's very convincing. But um, I think also I think if, if I'm not mistaken, in that book, um, Major Trends, he does he meant he makes that connection through uh, Sefer Hazorif, which is a book of of Sabbatean yes. book that. Um, he claims the that the Meshach had access to it. Yeah, exactly. yeah, he didn't know. He didn't know it was Sabbatean and all that. Exactly. So right. So now the truth is the the book that, if I'm not mistaken, tries to attack this is Moshe Idel's book. In, uh, he wrote a book called Kabbalah: New Perspectives. Uh, Yale University Press, I think, 1988. Um, and in there, he takes down a lot of Shalom's. Again, attempts to take down a lot of Shalom's arguments. And basically, Shalom and Idel form the two great holes of Kabbalistic research till this day, which everyone sort of uh, knocks back and forth. Yeah, so we did, We for anybody who's listening, for, for and hasn't heard our podcast before, you can go back to the episode uh, we did with with Professor Matt Goldish, who's going to be reappearing on our podcast. And we talked about the whole Sabbatean controversy. We also alluded to a lot of these things. And definitely there's an argument about how much did the, um, the uh, Arizal's um, or Luriana Kabbalah influence um, the the movement, um, so that's really what just to give you guys more context. But anyway, we're going off on a tangent. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the history of Kabbalah um, uh, resistance to Kabbalah, Kabbalah criticism, specifically Zohar criticism. I just just to point out a few of the major points. Now, I've talked about all the points that I've made, the counter arguments or, or the historical case as to why the Zohar, you know, is you know a late book. Um, is an, uh, doctrinally unsound, theologically problematic, historically problematic, blah, blah. And the, these points were made by various figures across the century. I just want to give you sort of the, the Rashe Prakim. Um, and, and, um, and, and yeah, and again, all this is, has been written by, by those better than me. And, uh, but but it's, it's worth knowing the story uh, in its essential. So, um, so the first, so, so as I said, towards the beginning of the segment, there are, um, there were, small signs in the 14th or 15th century of anti-Kabbalistic movement. So I mentioned the Shut of the Rivash, the statement by Yosef Ibn Wakar, who mentioned the evidence of, of Zakuto in, in, sorry, the evidence of, uh, of, of Isaac of Akko written in um, Sefer Yuchasin. We also must mention, so, so and, and, however, the first major work that really attacked the Zohar as is was a book called Bechinat Hadat, written by a philosopher called um, um, uh, Elijah del Medigo, um, who was writing in the late 1400s. I believe he wrote this book in 1491. Um, and really, it's, it's a defense of Jewish philosophical rationalism. That, that's his main project. However, it is also an attack on the Zohar. It's the first, it's not such a thorough work, or, or at least it's not a thorough work in this particular, in its attack of the Zohar. It only spends a relatively short amount of time on it. But it points out many of the, the, the problems in its doctrine and its theology, namely the whole notion of the theurgic efficacy of human actions, the idea that human beings can change the divine realm. It also mentions um, um, various other aspects which he finds difficult and problematic and mentions to a certain degree the uh, a few of the historical anachronisms that he they thought of as well and comes to the conclusion it's, it's a late book and mustn't be so that, that's sort of a first shot however the first major you know considerable historical treatment of the Zohar and, and uh, historical argument against the Zohar took place in Venice in the 1630s uh, by one of the most extraordinary rabbis of the time um, called I'm forgetting his name, the author of the Ari Nohem. It's just for context, anyone listening to this, it's 11.30 p.m. And, uh, you know, I've already taught today, like my, my brain is slightly in a world. Yes, I can't believe I forgot Modena's name. 
Yes, Leon de Mondena. Um, um, so fine. So he put together his book, the um, the Arinohem, is quite a considerable. He was a rationalist uh, to a large degree, a follower of Maimonides, but he saw Kabbalah encroaching in Italy very sharply in the 17th century. Again, post post uh, Arizal, post um, 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 Tzfat, post Chaim Vital spreading various Lurianic doctrines in Italy, and he saw Kabbalah taking over in the hearts and minds of many of his students. He decided to write a historical work criticizing the Zohar um, and bring up many of the historical points I made today. So the late... Um, you, you know, all various historical anachronisms and, and various mistakes and genealogy and, and, and misattributions and other such things. A lot of that comes up. And he really, I would say, made, let's say, 70 to 80 percent of the case against the Tsar. It was made by uh, Leon de Modena in, in his book, Arino Him. OK, maybe I'm exaggerating, 50 to 60 percent. But a very significant portion of the evidence brought up was already made uh, by the Arino Him. And that's a very important work. However, Modena, as much as he... Um, um, repudiated the notion that the Zohar was written by Rashbi was an ancient text. He nonetheless quite liked the Zohar. He was charmed by the Zohar. He liked its aesthetics. He liked its poetry. And the truth is that this kind of sharply divides critics of the Zohar as well. Because some people read the Zohar and go, okay, listen, this might not be Rashbi. Gosh, this is beautiful. And gosh, look at this language. And look at this poetry. And look at these expressions. And look at these ideas and how deep and how wonderful. And that's and that's the sort of person, that, I mean, he has criticisms of the Zohar, to be sure, but he praises it. He thinks it's, it's a beautiful instance of Midrashic thinking. Okay? How, and, and so that's the, 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 uh, his position there. The next, and, and however, that sharply differentiates him from the work of Rav Yaakov Emden, who I spoke about before. I'll talk about it a bit again. So this is the Mipachat Sfarim. This is published in Altona in 1768. Um, and Emden's position uh, was, as I said before, he looked at the whole Zohar and he found, and he enumerates in his uh, uh, Mipachat Sfarim, 282 instances where he believes that the Zohar is wrong, it's and and you know sometimes makes dreadful mistakes, um, even heretical errors, or or just um, you know poor grammar or, or you know wildly implausible uh, drashot on the psukim, etc. 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 And and he also is the first to mention um, the point of the nukudot and the ta'amim with the uh, the cancellation marks and the um, and the vowels. Um, and he makes quite a strong case again for the lateness of uh, of the Zohar, and also unlike Modena, he very much was not charmed by the by the Zohar. In other words, he really, um, even though as I said before, his introduction is a classic rabbinic introduction where he says how holy the Kabbalah is, and that there's a true core of the Zohar which is from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and absolutely authentic and absolutely crucial. And he himself was a Kabbalist. He wrote treatises on Kabbalah. He was an extremely, um, a really quite a brilliant. Um, um, and wide-ranging thinker, and also he was, as I put it before, the first blogger, uh, in the sense that he had a printing press in his basement, and basically everything he thought, he just wrote it up, printed it himself, and, and disseminated as much as he can. He was the first sort of uh, popular writer in that sense. Um, but he really made a very strong case um, against against the uh, against the Zohar. Then you move. Then moving on historically, you have the period of the Haskalah. Now the Haskalah. Um, certainly the second, third generation of the Haskalah, they were very anti-Kabbalah, very anti-the Zohar. However, they didn't phrase their objections in a systematic or in a scholarly way. Rather, their weapon of choice was satire. Right? They wrote, and it's quite common in masculine circles, they wrote very biting and very um, 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 nasty satirical works. Essentially, let's say, there's one famous one, I think it's Kinat Hayemet, uh, if I'm not mistaken, again, blanking on the name. Um, but 
um, but which puts, which throws a, a Kabbalistic rabbi into conversation with Moses Mendelssohn and, and with Rambam, and basically the, 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 the Kabbalist being a figure of derision and a figure of absolute, um, um, you know, essentially turned into a laughingstock due to his beliefs in all these various irrational, outdated elements. And of course, for many members of the Haskalah who are trying to form a Jewish community which hewed to the criteria of a modern European enlightened form of religion, that the Zohar was the ultimate enemy. It was the ultimate counterexample to enlightened, rational, progressive, forward-thinking, you know, a, a type of uh, type of Judaism. Both because of its doctrines and also because, again, it garbled Aramaic. That the, the, the many of the masculine liked the purity of the Hebrew of the Bible and the purity of of you know of um, medieval poetry and all such things. They couldn't stand the Zohar also because of its ideas, also because of its aesthetics. The one that I'm, I'm going to go through just the last couple of, of Tachanot, the last couple of things that I want to mention, because to, just to give, again, the Rashi Prakim, the chapter headings of, of Kabbalah criticism. By the way, my forthcoming book, uh, you know, Introduction to, to, to Shadal's Vekuach, which I'll mention in a moment, has a large introduction in which I enumerate this history, you know, a bit more uh, thoroughly. I'm thinking of writing a whole book on the subject. It's a fascinating subject. But... Um, but the, yeah, the next stage is Shadal, Shmuel David Lutzato, who is, um, again, a, a, a maskil, his dates are 1800 to 1865. And in the year 1826, he pens a work called Vikuach al-Chochmata Kabbalah, in which he places um, his own, um, which he, which, yeah, in which essentially he, he places two uh, figures, two literary figures, the the oreach, the the uh, the guest, and the the mechaber, the author, the first person narrator. And the first person narrator is a staunch defender of rabbinic traditionalism, including the Zohar. And the oreach, who is a guest, who is a gentleman from Poland who comes in, is um, one of these mas a masculine archetype, let's say, a stereotype of the, of the masculine kind of um, of thinker and 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 um, expressor of ideas. And they have a 150 page long debate on. The Kabbalah on 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 and specifically on the Al Kadmuta Zohar and that's the part of the title as well. Whether the Zohar was in fact authentic, whether it was um, authoritative, whether it was in fact um, an, a, a book from uh, from antiquity, um, it's a fascinating debate, especially because and this is one of the brilliance of Shadal's debates, the Shadal's literary creations, is that the two sides are fairly evenly matched. Right? It's not like the Kuzari or other debates where you have one figure who's clearly right and basically just the mouthpiece of the author and teaching the author. Shadal's uh, uh, Vikuach, his debate, pictures two very well-matched, very clever, very expressive um, um, defenders of their respective traditions and puts them in, in a clash with each other, right? Now, it's clear that Shadal's overall sympathies are with the anti-Kabbalistic tradition, that is true. However, he also marshals arguments there refuting or, or attempting to refute or attempting to provide counterpoints to the positions of the masculine guest, okay? And that's why, in, in my mind, that is, of all this anti-Kabbalistic tradition, this, into my mind, is the masterpiece. Um, um, you know, better than the Arino Hema, better than the Mibachat Svarim, in the sense that it is also a, a sharp literary work where the points are bounded, you know, bandied back and forth, back and forth. It's true, much of what Shadal says is dependent upon the Arino Hem and the Mibachat Svarim of, of Modena and, and Emden, but, his chidush, his innovations are really in the realm of of um, nikud and uh, nikudot and ta'amim, meaning the the vowels and cantillation marks, and basically proving extremely thoroughly that the early grammarians, including Ibn Ezra and, and, and all the other and Radak and all the others, and many of the Prashanim, 
did not presume the antiquity of the of the vowels and cantillation marks, knew that they were a later invention of the Anshe Tiveria, of the Anshe Masora, and not from antiquity. And therefore, since the Zohar quotes it, the Zohar must always also be a late work. Okay, this is this is the main point of Shadal's work, and it is a really quite a brilliant work. Um, and I think it'll be also all the more brilliant uh, when translated into English and accompanied with eleven hundred footnotes. Um, um, please, God, as well as we very excited for that. Yeah, very excited. Yeah, and also I think um, one that we you haven't mentioned I think is Rav Kapach's um, fight against the Zohar. Yes, I, I, I was going to get to that. The truth is that I haven't done so much research into that. Um, mainly because my, my area of research is, is Europe-focused and, and Europe-based. And, and again, you know, is that thing? So I'll, I'll admit that I, I don't know at the moment. So I, I it's on my list of things to research. Um, the, the final sort of tahana, the final element that I want to put in is the Wissenschafters Judentums movement. Okay, the Wissenschafters Judentums movement were the scholars 19th century Judaism. Um, um, you know, the first historians of Judaism, the first Jewish scholars, including Leopold Suntz and Heinrich Gretz and Abraham Geiger and Zacharias Frankel and, and various others, who studied Judaism through the lens of uh, historical criticism and philology and all the academic tools that were that enjoyed credence at the time in the German academia of, of its period. Um, and they also studied the Kabbalah and they were actually very proficient in it. There's, there's a wonderful book by George Kohler of Varan University published recently, which um, which goes through this period and it outlines how these scholars really did a lot of excellent research and founded the, the Kabbalah research. And um, and basically they all came to the conclusion, yes, the Zohar is, is a late uh, is a late uh, a, a late book written by Moshe de Leon. Um, um, at least that was the, the, the conclusion mainly by Adolf Jelinek, who's the first great Kabbalah researcher in the 1850s. Um, and, and and yes, and that and so the Wissenschaftsunitums movement, now some of them, as I mentioned, like Gretz and Steinschneider, were very hostile to the Kabbalah, but many of them weren't. And this is a very important thing to note. Actually, many of the Wissenschaftsunitums movement uh, figures had an element, including Abraham Geiger and including even Shadal to a certain extent and others, had an element of sympathy or an element of understanding what the Kabbalists were trying to do. They, some of them saw it um, as how I tried to portray it right at the beginning of this, of this podcast, as a kind of medieval philosophy, as a response to the common questions and common issues that philosophers and Kabbalists and every religious thinker had, and the creation of an extremely um, creative and literarily beautiful midrashic cosmos which attempts to address these questions and build a, 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 a formulate a notion or a um a, a depiction of judaism which allows for the dealing of these questions or allows for answering of these questions and that is that's the, the 19th century the reason why i stop i choose a bookend in the 19th century is because from that point onward, the, the orthodox and non-orthodox world, the, oh, sorry, the orthodox and the more Kabbalah skeptic world kind of divide themselves, right? There was a bit more of a spasm when Gershom Shalom published his book and a couple people, you know, published some responses. And again, with the whole Kapach uh, thing, both, both, um, uh, uh, both, you know, um, the, the grandfather and the grandson, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the the various controversies there. But the truth is that after the, after the 1870s, 1880s, there was a sharp uh, distinction between the academic world and the mainstream orthodox world. And therefore the debate sort of ceased. In other words, those who are convinced, it's a bit like nowadays. Nowadays, there isn't so much of a, of a debate in the Jewish world regarding Kabbalah. In the sense that the vast portion of orthodox Jews, I would say today, take it as read that yeah, Kabbalah, the, the Zohar is written by Rashbi and the Kabbalah is an authentic and, 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 and um, ancient part of Jewish 
beliefs and and that you know really is the secret mystical core of the torah and that that's that is nowadays i would say largely a mainstream orthodox belief and there are those who are you know awakened or or um, um you know academically inclined jews who, who know the historical evidence have reached what i believe to be the correct historical conclusions um and and but there isn't so much debate i would say nowadays in topic although it's coming a little bit back into fashion now and maybe after this podcast you know yeah. hits the waves it'll suddenly explode and become a live uh, a live subject once again um yeah and and therefore that's why i think that that's the appropriate place to sort of put a kind of a full stop but again uh, you know intellectual discussions come in and out of fashion um uh, and who knows what we might see in the coming decades. Yeah, I think I think it's been often met with violence, like you mentioned in the past. And yeah. in in today's world, maybe there's like a we we might be met with some pitchforks. But we're really we're we're starting a conversation that's very important. And I don't think anything like this conversation even exists online. Um, so I really, yeah, I, I really want to thank you for thank you such a thorough uh, analysis. Fantastic. Really? Can I make a, a sort of a parting statement, which I think is uh, germane? See, until now, I've been I've tried to be the historian, um, which is what I am, or at least aspiring to be. And please God, one day we'll even have the words, the letters PhD after my name, with a bit of luck and a lot of persistence. Uh, Amen. Amen. There's something I want to say. Having said everything you've said so far today, which is as follows, which is that it a large part of this debate turns on how the Zohar is treated. Okay, in other words, if one approaches the Zohar like one approaches any other work of Midrash, let's say the Midrash Rabbah, the Midrash Tehillim, and sees it as a work of, you know, literary creativity with some good ideas sewn in and some, you know, you know, as, as a reservoir, as a source from which interesting ideas could be mined, then it's hard to object to that. Because the truth is, the Tsar is a wonderful example of medieval midrash, a, a very, um, you know, immensely creative, deeply well informed. Those who wrote the Zohar really, really knew Chazal, really knew midrash, really knew all of this stuff very well, and it is an excellent example of medieval midrash. If that's how it's treated, it's difficult to object to it. It is an astonishing example of that genre. However, if it is treated like an authoritative Tanaitic work, which Whose, whose theology is absolutely right, you know, as it is stated, and whose halachic ideas are absolutely correct, and whose, you know, facts about, you know, statements about history and statements about genealogy and statements about the, the way the world is, both the human world and the divine world, and, and the czar is taken as absolutely authoritative, that becomes a problem. Because then the bibliographic question becomes very strong, and I think anyone who looks at the historical evidence has no choice but to come down on the side of the czar is in fact a late work, and therefore undermines the treating of the czar as a an extremely important and an centrally authoritative pillar of the Jewish religion. However, the, I think the czar belongs on our bookshelf. It's a good, it's an, it's a fascinating reservoir of ideas. Belongs on the shelf of medieval midrash. Of course, it definitely. If it's if it stays in that place, I think yeah. that it's harmless, and I think that it's um, something maybe beneficial, even in a way. But exactly. it, 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 won't, it won't. It hasn't stayed there. And the problem is, is that once you, once it already kind of infiltrated every aspect of most aspects of, of Judaism today, if if we pull out that thread from the the whole tapestry, kind of comes apart. Um, and that that's really the issue because 
there's already Luriana Kabbalah, there's already Hasidut, there's already all these ideas. And it, it does have an effect because you have all of these kind of byproducts of that, which is the tzaddik and the whole thing about, you know, um, the Godhead being multiplex. These are all like fundamental problems that, that, that Maimonideans or traditional Sephardic or whatever you want to call it will always find this to be blasphemous. Yeah, uh, I, I agree to that. And, and that is the, I wouldn't say tragedy, but that is the deep tension and problem that has arisen in the last few hundred years of Jewish intellectual history. Yeah. Yeah. Chacham Kimchi, thank you so much. Ooh, two hours and 45 minutes. I, I'm impressed with us, with all you of us. You might have to split this into two podcasts or something. Okay. <laughs> At your leisure. All this is now your material. Do with it what you will. Enjoy it. Um, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank I mean, you. Uh, it's, it's not easy wonderful. to sit there for two hours and 45 minutes and give all the information like that. I mean, we really appreciate it. We hope that it serves to benefit all the listeners and, and um, we wish you luck on all your endeavors. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.